So, I'm so up. I, I don't know when this is gonna end. I have another 40 miles to ride. Like, I'm f I, what the f This is the Bike Pack Racing Podcast with Ezra Ward-Packard and Andrew Onerma. Welcome back to the Bike Pack Racing Podcast. I'm your host, Ezra Ward-Packard, and this is episode number 23. A very fitting number given our guest today. In my humble opinion, the goat of bike pack racing. Kurt Ruffschneider has pretty much won it all. Tour Divide, Arizona Trail Race, Colorado Trail Race, Iditarod, and countless other events. Additionally, he's super involved in the community with his bikepacking roots organization and his involvement in Protect Our Winters. I had the really awesome opportunity to sit down with Kurt in his home for two hours and talk all things bikepacking. Today's election day, so hopefully the lines aren't too long, but if they are, you've got two hours of what I think is an absolutely fantastic conversation. Enjoy. So preparing for this, we were talking before we hit record, just trying to like figure out everywhere you've been, kind of like lay out this 2022 year. <laughs> I guess the first question is, how is it to be home after it months on the road? It like, feels good. Yeah, I was gone for, I think I left Prescott in the very end of May. Okay. And I managed to somehow not make it back until just two days ago and it's now early November. So it was definitely a whirlwind summer. I think it's the longest I've been away from home ever and it was great and it feels good to be back and able to like explode my van and clean stuff up and relax. And yeah. Yeah. Except when I got home, I had to figure out all the critters that had moved into the various parts of the house and garage and start to work on getting them to go back outside. So one of the challenges of leaving home and not really planning a return date. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, like, with how busy this year was, do you think it was, like, almost, like, overcompensating for the fact that the past two years have been kind of mm, restricted? Good... Or was it just, like, opportunities arose and you're like, yeah, let's just take them? I think it was mostly opportunities. Like, last year ended up being still quite busy um, with travel, with the, the Backcountry Bike Challenge that Kate and I launched um, kind of during the pandemic. And trying to get people out to, to different long trails and ride them. And uh, for us to go ride some of them ourselves and work with the local trail orgs a little bit with with um, with that program. And this year then it was, I mean, partially just being, having like stage races and bigger events. Coming back online, being stoked to do some of those. Yep. So ended up out in uh, the East Coast for a month in the spring and did the Pisgah stage race. And okay. I was going to do the Rockstar Ultra right after and got really sick, which may or may not have been covid every test said negative but Got sure it. as heck felt like that and it was like a month to kind of feel like myself again afterward so yeah. before we talk about that east coast yeah. i want to like really wind it to the beginning of this year which started out with a broken hand oh yeah that's right that seems like so long ago yeah, but right? that was it was kind of long ago but that's kind of like the start of the year and yeah really like just going through your instagram and just like trying to figure out everywhere it was and that was kind of like my starting point i'm like okay 
broken hand in end of January yeah. up in Idaho. Yeah, I'd been in Idaho and done the um, JP's Fat Pursuit okay. up there, the 200, well, I guess it was the 200K distance now because the 200 mile one is no more, Okay, which was one, I, that was one of the two hardest days on the bike I've had this year. Damn. It was that event. It, it was just blizzarding the whole time and really, really challenging conditions. And then spent a few weeks afterward up there training um, in the snow and doing a little skiing. And then literally the last day I was up there, I was just riding on the mellow groomed trails in South Valley, like right outside of Victor and just front tire washed out in a turn going like eight miles an hour or something and hit the ground. Not very hard, but I heard my left hand snap and I was like, what the hell? Like, how did that break my hand? Yeah. But it did. And then had to drive back to Arizona to get health coverage. Yeah. Well, didn't even help with anything because my deductible is so high. Just that terrible system. Yeah. But had to come back here for treatment and eventually got it looked at and end up having to take, what, about a month, I think, off off the bike outside. I was able okay. to get on the trainer and did some fun fun hiking adventures in Grand Canyon, which was really neat. Nice. Good excuse to go in there where you can't ride a bike and spend some time on foot, which I'd not done enough of. Diversify. Over the years. Diversify, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And then was able to get back on the bike outside on smoother, smoother stuff. It was okay. mostly pavement to start. And Got then, it. Yeah, so that was basically just trying to keep my fitness and build some fitness for the Pisgah stage race, which was kind of touch and go whether or not my hand would be healed enough to be able to okay. ride really hard trail. Yeah. Uh, at, in, when was that? Beginning, uh, beginning of April? April very beginning of April. Yep. Yeah. So it was kind of like a 10-week recovery for the hand okay. before it would be strong enough for mountain biking again hopefully and was this your first like major major injury or have you had other like major setbacks i've like had this? lots of not surprisingly lots of overuse okay. type things yep. over the years and i'm actually dealing with one in my hip right now that's been nagging all summer um but ironically the last broken thing i had was my other hand oh okay. same almost yep. same bone um and that was 2000 Jeez, 2006, I think. Okay, so in the cross, cross yeah, the cross race, race out race. east. Okay, and crashed in the snow also, Damn. and broke my hand. Didn't realize it during the race, and ended up it was my best, one of my best cross race results on like the national circuit ever. Finishing nice. with a broken hand that hurt so bad, and yeah, then it was the same thing like trying to keep fitness for nationals at that point, and this one was trying to keep fitness and on the trainer for. The, the Pisco stage race and I hadn't actually spent time on a trainer in between those two incidents <laughs> that's a good record that's a good record that's so, uh, 16 years <laughs> 16 years of no trainer miles yeah, I like that that's was, that's living the life it was great living yeah. the life so with this broken hand like like mentally like was that it seems like you kind of just like were like yep yeah, okay it happened also like only four weeks off the trails it's not like one of those injuries that just kind of like drags on it seems like there's a nice little like oh, okay four weeks i can like work through yeah this. like yeah i think that was that was the attitude i had like injuries happen yep. like stupid things happen i feel lucky that i mean with all the really rugged backcountry stuff i ride this happened like right on the edge of town it wasn't a big incident in that sense um of like getting to, to healthcare, and then you know, it's not a major injury. Bones, yeah. bones break, bones heal really well. Yep. It, I didn't need surgery for it. So in that sense, it was, you know, if you're going to get a kind of bad injury, might as well be that. Yep. And I hadn't had anything like that for a while. So it wasn't, it didn't, like it felt like a setback, but it didn't hit me really hard mentally. And I was able to kind of pivot and 
you can usually, I don't know, usually it seems like injuries, both with myself and with so many people I've, I've coached, they turn out to be kind of positive things because it like forces you to step back from being so focused on yeah. some things and gives you opportunities to try some other things or divert your energy in other directions. So like for me, it was spending more time on foot. It gave me a little bit more time to just focus on some work stuff in the process and like get ahead on that a little bit so that then when my hand was healed, I had more time to actually be outside and be on the bike and not like be stressed from trying to balance the yeah. work stuff and the pedaling stuff. So yeah, and just trying to keep that attitude. And then also just thinking about other folks I know that have suffered some pretty bad injuries from bike crashes or other things in life and illnesses and that this like in the bigger context a broken hand is really minor and shouldn't like shouldn't be a huge mental impact or emotional impact yeah also like with like that sort of injury and for you and the kind of lifestyle that you live like traveling around so much mm -hmm. like I feel like that almost forced you to stay it did here yeah. and not like go out because that was so I'm up the road in Flagstaff and I'm you know, every weekend in the winter, kind of like driving down the highway Trying to, to get out Verde, of winter. <laughs> and then riding out of Camp Verde. And there were a few days where I like never ran into you on the road, but mm -hmm. there were a few days where I was like, oh, look at that on Strava. Kurt was also like in Strawberry yeah. like, <laughs> the same day I was, you yep. know, just a few hours before or a few hours after. And I don't remember if I saw this, but I think I saw there was a ride where you were posted something about like having some of the highest power numbers that you yeah. had in years after I got back on the bike and yeah and that was actually something that was really fascinating is like I spent so much time riding on trail and trails are not the best place to train like they don't build fitness the way that riding on the road does and I hate that reality but it's reality yeah. <laughs> and so I think having to spend time on the trainer and spend a lot of time doing intervals because anything else on the trainer is really dull and then um once I got back outside kind of same same thing I couldn't ride for a ton of time but I spent a lot of time on the road and spent a lot of time doing intensity uh, in that and it was really interesting that like fitness wise if you think of it just in terms of like threshold power something yeah. like that which is just you know one piece of fitness but yeah that was the fittest I'd ever been and at the, at the end of that so going out to to the Pisgah stage race I was really stoked because of that like I had a ton of confidence in my fitness but holy cow, I hadn't ridden Techie Descents yep. in month, like since I think November. And that had me so out of my element in Pisgah because it's really gnarly riding. And also just hand strength. And yep. it wasn't just my broken hand, it was both hands because yep. I hadn't been on anything rough. And the descents there, like 20, if you're, if you're descending for like 20 minutes, I'd make it like eight. And then both my arms and hands would be so pumped that I was like, shit, just holding on for dear life and having to really dial it back so that I didn't just like loose grip on the bars yeah so that was one of the interesting things that actually was the biggest limiter uh, coming out of um, the recovery so feeling great on the climbs then on the descents at Pisgah just kind of yep not quite there not yep. quite there when you're thinking about your own training and then as a coach with ultra mtb like how much consideration do you put into like that sort of like almost divide that there is in bike pack racing where in my mind i almost view it as like there's two different things right it's all kind of lumped together mm -hmm. but you have something that's super pedally like the tour divide where yep. technical skills like yes you can make up a few minutes on a descent but you don't but it's all any. about pedaling yeah. and then you think about something like the azt or colorado trail race and it's the complete opposite of that where it's like yes fitness 
does matter, mm-hmm. but being able to like ride your bike really efficiently and technically sound matters more. Is that something that you like think about? Totally. No, totally. Okay. those are huge considerations. And there have been so many folks that have come to me as a coach and had questions about that. Like, hey, I did Tour Divide and did great, like felt strong, was really excited by it. And then I just tried to do the CTR and got completely humbled because of not, not not necessarily lack of technical skills, but the difference in the physical demands of the route. Yeah. And like thinking about you're climbing 3,000 steep feet on single track versus like just steady pedaling where you can really keep your power right where you want it to be or your heart rate or whatever you want to use as a gauge in something like a you know dirt road or gravel gravel race. And so they are really different kinds of fitness. And that's been one of the fun things as a... Um, as an athlete on my own just over the past like five years is really when I targeted a particular event spending the four months or so before it really focused on the demands of that particular one and even thinking about more so like what what part of that event kind of scares me the most or am I most intimidated by and like for the Colorado Trail I tried it tried racing it four times and none of those times went well and it was the climbing on that that was the biggest challenge for me. And okay. so the last, I mean, 2008. And do you think it was like, because you've had so much success on the AZT, but just talking oh, to the, like yeah. John yesterday, we were kind of talking about how this past year there was nine finishers. No, was it nine finishers? Yes, I think it was nine finishers of the 800. Mm-hmm. And eight were on single speed. Yeah. And I was like, why do you think that is? Like, besides the whole mental aspect of, like, single <laughs> speeders just kind of, like, being... Stubborn. Stubborn and, <laughs> I, like, badasses, yeah, right? And he was kind of like, that's yeah. kind of it. Because he was like, on the AZT, there's a whole bunch of hike-a-bike. But that hike-a-bike isn't like Colorado where it's like, oh, I'm going to push my bike up this mountain for the next four hours. It's more like, oh, I have to push my bike for the next four minutes, get yeah. back on the bike, ride for four minutes, get back off the bike, and back and forth. And there's a good chance that me on gears would also be hiking yep. a good chunk of those yeah. steep, short, steep climbs because it's just not worth, even if I have the gear, it's not worth digging that deep to stay on the bike yeah. to get up it. Um, so I guess my question is like, what was what was it about Colorado Trail Race that was like... I think, it, I think it was two things. I think one part was mental that okay. just based on where I've been riding a ton and training in the years leading up to that here in Arizona, like we just don't have three or 4,000 foot climbs that I ride very often. And like you have to seek them out. Yeah. They're, they're hard to find. And Especially on single track. Like that's especially, very rare. Yeah. It's like you can find some gravel climbs, but yep. that's more that's, like that's good very divide different. training yeah. where it's like yeah. go up to Mingus Mountain, go up to wherever like there's a whole bunch of yep, those but not like here, the single track yeah long so, so part of it was just being intimidated by knowing that there's that many climbs and that i haven't spent a lot of time on them but part of it definitely was just physical that i'm not my legs weren't accustomed to steady uh well like punctuated efforts okay. on yeah. single track that like you can keep it steady some of the time but then for little bits you just need to push a little harder to get up and doing that for you know a three thousand or four thousand foot climb could be a couple hours or three hours depending on on the section of trail and how tired you are. Yeah. And so that was just something that my body, I hadn't helped my body adapt to. And so for that Colorado trail effort, that was a big, like the big goal was just normalize those climbs for myself. And that's where okay. that mantra of normalize difficult yep. that helps has helped me so much. That's where that came from was actually the prep that year. And I went up to, where did I end? I ended up in the San Juans, like the, or the La Plata is very Southwestern okay. part of the San Juans. 
for like three weeks, four weeks before the race. And I just rode big climbs like that. And even here in Prescott, um, I didn't even realize it. I discovered there's a 4,000 foot climb here okay. from the backside of the Bradshaws. That's chunky mine road nice. most yep. of the way up. And so it's not single track. I think it's actually harder than single track yeah. for a lot of the climb. And so I spent a lot of time on that. And by the time the CTR started, like that year it started in Durango, it's a 6,000 foot climb, which is still kind of mind boggling to yeah. me. Um, but that didn't seem like 4,000 feet had become really normalized yep. to me and, and to my body. And so suddenly that didn't weigh on me and I could think, like focus on other parts of the ride. Yeah. And it made such a big difference. But if I had used that training for like Tour Divide, would not have translated well yeah. at all. And I would have felt so weak in all these long, steady pedaling efforts, which is also how I would feel if I hopped in like any gravel race yeah. right now. Is like my legs just aren't adapted to that kind of a... a pedaling demand so when we think about it in like like these sorts of climbs that you were kind of struggling with in my mind it's like you're riding i don't you know zone two zone three but then there's all these like constant little like blips Mm -hmm. up into like i can either stop and walk my bike up this section or Mm -hmm. i have to jump up into zone four zone five like really just like real explosive almost like short efforts yeah i mean it it might only bike pack racing you just don't even think of that as a thing but then it's like when you that's the terrain right it's like the trail is dictating your speed and so like i really like your approach of just like finding an area where you can just like like duplicate that because that is something that's like kind of hard to duplicate if you are in like a flat environment where it's like maybe you're just riding at you know zone three and trying to do like 30 second on intervals Mm -hmm. right it's like it doesn't yeah yeah yep the better you can emulate and like i mean say you're going to prepare for the Arizona Trail 300, like just training on that kind of single track yep. wouldn't be the best. But if you can dedicate a moderate amount of time on that, and unfortunately, in my perspective, a moderate amount of time on the road also, that would be kind of the ideal combination yep. uh, to get the like well-rounded fitness that you need for an event like that. And I mean, ultimately my goal, I don't even think of it necessarily as being as fast as I can. It's just being as adapted to the demands of a particular route so that there, so that I don't I mean, basically so that I feel better on the bike. And the better you feel, the happier you are. The happier yeah. you are, the better you ride, and the more enjoyment you have. Yeah. And the more you enjoy it, like it's, it's just snowballs. Yep. And the contrary, or the converse happens also. That the more you struggle, the less fun you have, which makes it more of a struggle, which makes it even less fun. And yep. then suddenly you're just in a little ball of misery trying to hike down the trail. And that's, that's not where you want to be. Yeah. <laughs> Looking at, like, this year, like, leading into 2022, I feel like you do a really good job kind of, like, looking at the things that you do, it's almost like that you bounce back and forth between, like, a structured race and kind of more an adventure and then mm-hmm. an FKT effort. And it's, like, when you're, like, looking at building out a calendar, like, with sponsor obligations, um I guess that's another thing that, like, in my notes, you started a whole new team this year, the Industry 9 Pivot Pro Backcountry team mm-hmm. that launched in February. Or, uh, yeah. February. Yep. So, like, with, like, those sponsor obligations, when you're, like, looking at creating a calendar for the year, like, what what's kind of your mindset? Like, what are you thinking about? Is it back and forth, back and forth? <laughs> like, what is, or yeah. does it just kind of, like, fall no, that's, together? And... That's a great question. No, there's a lot of intention to it. Um, and I think... I think, I mean, usually there's a, a couple really big goals that stand out. And, like, that's what my calendar is kind of built around. And so for 
Well, this year is kind of a weird exception. Uh, but say in a typical year, I might have two ultras okay. that are big goals. And that's kind of the limit of what I want to do for ultras at this point. Like they're so hard on the body. They're so hard on the mind. Um, they take a lot of time to recover from. And they take so much time and energy to prepare for. Yeah. And I'm only willing to jump into an ultra if I know that my body and mind are really ready for it. Like because it's such a commitment in so many ways that I want to make sure I'm going to have a really strong ride and have fun out there and not risk doing undue damage to my body by yeah. not being as prepared as I feel like I should be for it. And so usually there's a couple uh, of those. And I've for most of the last few years, it's, it's really ended up being like a spring one and a like late summer, something yep. like that. And so kind of spaced out. And I really do benefit so much from having some time after events like that, like after recovering of just completely unstructured, like not training focused at all, just going out and doing some other big adventures or big trail, like yeah. single day trail rides or things like that, that one will help rebuild fitness, but also just are what really inspire me. Uh, so that's, that's kind of usually where my year starts. And then it's like, okay, well, there's these gaps in between. And especially there's like the build periods toward those, those big events. That's where I like to put other races that are usually a very different style yep. that help build the fitness and are just really fun intermediate goals that kind of take my mind off the bigger goal out there yeah. and give me something else to focus on that's a little bit more immediate and something different and so it's like i think a really positive distraction and so this year that's where the pisgah stage race came in like stage races are amazingly demanding and really good for building fitness so was that like a big goal for you or was that one kind of it, okay. it actually kind of yep. was because i had because i feel like that's a little bit like unique to what you normally do like those stages are only 40 50 miles oh long. they were some of them were shorter the the first stage in that one was I think it was only 45 minutes. Oh, it was like damn. a little okay. prologue thing. And then the other stages were all in the like three to three and a half hour range, okay. pretty much. So they're short for me Got it. at this yeah. point. Um, but I also do really like riding as fast as I can yeah. for shorter duration like that. And it's one of the more technical stage races out there. It's in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, in the like Pisgah, that Asheville Pisgah Forest. So it's, yeah, the okay. riding actually really reminded me of the kind, like the way that the riding here is technical. Okay. Except yeah. wetter and with more roots. Yeah. So that was, uh, that <laughs> yes. threw me out of my element. Yeah. Uh, but I really enjoyed that, um, that style of racing and it was a really competitive field there. And so it was fun to just see how close I could stay to the like legit local pros from that area, which they're pretty much all like cross-country pros so this is yeah the stages were like Warner and yeah, yeah there's the, a whole the like stages were a little bit yeah. long for them they were definitely short for me yeah. and there's always this funny of like well where's the like where could we potentially meet in the middle yeah. and they were they're still too short for that yes. but <laughs> how did you end up doing that I ended up fifth overall nice. which i was stoked at yeah. i was yeah I was, especially i mean coming off a broken hand and like having to deal yeah. with like figuring out how to hold the handlebars yeah and steer and yeah i, I was really really happy with that and also most of the guys i was racing were like 10 to 15 years younger than me so yeah that's, that's, a, that's a, a newer reality i for think it's a great time to bring it up today is your birthday <laughs> is, happy yeah. birthday thank you ezra 41 41 41 yeah. yep over the hill and i mean 10 some of those kids were probably 20 years younger. There, yeah they're a bunch right? of college there's kids there's just like so many like hitters that are yeah 
like 20 years old. Fortunately, like especially, they don't, most yeah. of the college kids that were there didn't know how to pace themselves. So they went out super hard and like flew in the first two stages and then cratered on like stage three and four. I'm still working on that in my own personal racing life. I I'm still like, do I'm a so little excited. bit myself. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I can totally hold 300 watts for the next 24 hours. No, I can't. Never mind. <laughs> That's not happening. But there's an optimism that, that definitely says you should be able to. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to hold on to that a little bit. So from Pisgah, you, I know you started Rockstar, it's 270? 270 miles. miles. And is that, I'm not familiar with that event at all. Where is that? So it's in Rockstar, it's from Rock City to Star City, I think are the nicknames, or Rocktown to Star City, which is Harrisonburg and Roanoke. Okay, so Virginia. Okay. Yep. And so it's, it's it's an event that's been around for a long time, and they have three different variations that both start and end at the same place they have a single track one which is mostly pretty techie trail there's a gravel one and a paved one okay and Very so cool. you have people showing up at the start on road bikes and gravel bikes and full suspension mountain bikes that's and awesome we all that's roll out together unique. and that's then cool. yeah and then think people split off pretty quickly into their different they need a fourth option ones. where it's like one third of each you just kind of like in between oh, like mix it all together it's like which bike do you bring your do you bring wisely. the gravel bike for the single track or are yeah. you on a mountain bike that for be, the road that'd be a fun one but it's yeah there's a really cool community that's built around that yep. event um, there were during the pandemic. There were a lot of people chasing FKTs on the gravel and the paved versions okay. of of the routes. Not so many on the single track, um, but it's one that I've wanted to do for a long time, and it's just so far away. And in my head, I was like, "Oh, Pisgah," and then a week off, and then Rockstar, and then after Pisgah, I was like, "Oh no, I'm pretty worked. Yeah. <laughs> like this is this is yeah. not enough recovery to be able to jump in." And then it turned out I was also battling um, some kind of illness and started um, Rockstar, and within like four hours i felt like i had ridden 200 miles already and just like energy was very steadily going down and so i ended up pretty i mean i think five hours in deciding that there was no chance i was going to even be able to ride the whole thing much less ride it fast and ended up turning around riding back on roads to to harrisonburg and man i felt so crummy for a couple days after that then started to get better and then it came I, i think i started training a little bit again and then it came back with a vengeance and was like entirely my lungs that point. Okay. At first it felt like the flu or like mostly just fever and um, like no energy okay. pretty much. But then the next time I was like in my lungs for, I think I'd started a bike packing trip also. And the, the first evening I was like, oh no, am I getting sick again? Yeah. And so I was out for like six days and just like taking naps all afternoon. It was one of those, I was really excited to ride the route and I just shouldn't have. Yeah. Kept going, but stubbornly did, yeah. and then really paid the price for for that. Was this also when your hamstring tendonitis started to so that that was just issue, or was it? Bef- it was just after that. Okay, so I got I. So you had got, that. So it wasn't hamstring related. No, that was no. Just so, I, so I got this. Yeah, okay. so I got got healthy. I came back to Prescott um, after being on the road for a month, and was healthy, started training again once I was here, and pretty quickly started, this this weird thing in my hamstring flared up, and I have no idea what set it off. Um, It was like I felt it most one day when I was just like in the garage unpacking stuff and moving things around, and I was like, whoa, what's wrong? Like something feels weird, and I'd noticed it just a little bit. I'd done like two eight-hour rides uh, on my hardtail on some pretty bumpy terrain out northwest of Prescott, and In both of those, like just the last half hour, something in my hip felt a little weird. Like it felt like my hip was trying to pull out of its socket. Like it didn't hurt. It just felt weird. And 
then it started to actually hurt. And so I dialed it back and uh, found a PT in town that I hadn't worked with before and saw her and she had some really good ideas about what it might be. And it was one of those weird, like not really tendonitis, like felt like tendonitis, but was like just down in the muscle, muscle body a little bit. And um, seemed, I mean, like there was a big hole feeling thing, like you could feel oh, okay. in the hamstring, like what you'd get if you pulled your muscle away from from the tendon or the bone, yeah. but it wasn't in the place that that normally happens. And so she thought it was basically just a muscular injury and worked on it for a while. Like an overuse muscular injury? I mean, or it, just it like seemed weird like... Because there's not like a, an event, right? No, like that's there like... wasn't. And that was what was so yeah. weird is because I never, like there was never any sing- singular thing where I was like, oh, that hurt. Yeah. Like, or, you know, a crash or anything like exceptionally big that then I felt really bad after it. Uh, it just, like, slowly got worse while I also, like, started to notice it and dialed everything back that I was doing. Yeah. And so, fortunately, I figured out there were some things that really aggravated it, like trail riding at that point. Running okay. was really hard on it. Yeah. But steady riding on pavement, unfortunately, was not. <laughs> and so I ended up Your back thing. on the gravel Your bike. thing. <laughs> yeah. And I think then I was in Colorado a little bit. Um, and at that point, my mind was on this this route, the Comstock Epic route, okay. um, yep. which was a former race bikepacking race across Nevada, like an east-west one, that I've wanted to try for a long time. And the landscape out there is a really incredible one. And so that was in my mind. It's a very pedally one. Like, it's almost all dirt road and jeep road because there's just virtually no single track out there. And so when I was seeing this PT, I was like, I really want to try this. And she's like, that's not a good idea. I don't think it'll work. Like, I think it's probably going to set things off. But then... But you said that was the type of effort that you kind of could exactly. do where it's yeah. like this long sustained Yeah. Yeah. So, so I did some long, long training rides when I was up in Boulder and was even doing some like moderate intensity intervals and they were feeling good. Like like the hip hamstring thing wasn't healed, but it wasn't bothering me too much. Wasn't getting worse. Yeah. And so that's something with injuries that I'm almost, I almost wish there was like two different words for <laughs> event based injuries where it's like. Yeah, I broke my collar. I broke my hand. Yeah. Or there's this weird stress-related. Yeah. What is this kind of mystery? And it's like finding the limits of what can I do on the bike? Like, well, definitely can't run, so we're not going to yeah. do that. But it's like I can do this kind of riding. But and it's like, am I hurting myself, or is this like actually making it? Yeah, and that's what I was really like lean, better like leaning that, on yeah. on the PT for to be like, what like what can I do? What can't I do? What's too much? And she's like, just use pain as the guide like yeah don't if it if it's bothering you during it definitely don't do it if it makes it worse after you did too much which that's, that's obvious i still to need to hear to you, that is use pain as a guide it's i know like, <laughs> and so i was trying did she like know your background oh, she like, knows yeah okay, she knows okay. and that's good so she was she was really trying to be helpful and i think just hearing it hearing her stress that every time i talked to her was really helpful as a reminder and like it was one of those things, like, I didn't need to go do Comstock. It wasn't a huge goal for the year. It was just, like, the weather window was closing in June. Yep. And then what really made things worse was that suddenly there was a really cool weather window. Like, a very strong cold front went through. And right around the solstice, so, like, June 20th, the highs on the route, which should be most years in, like, the mid-90s, were mid-70s. Nice. Like, oh, okay. no. And so like, this is, like, this, kind of way southern Utah? Or not Utah, uh, Nevada? Like, central. Like central, There's okay. the, the Highway 50 corridor that goes, like, right across the middle of the state. Okay. And most of the route is just south of that. Got it. Okay. So it's kind of Carson City east to okay. the yep. middle of nowhere on the Utah border. Okay. Um, 
And so then I was suddenly in this awkward position of like, uh oh, my injury is definitely not better. This is the only, like, this is the last weather window I'm going to get. I should probably just go and do it. Yeah, and at least try. Yeah, yeah. So I found a cheap plane ticket out to Reno and have a friend out there who offered to take me down to the start. And then I texted my PT and was like, hey, I'm going to go do this. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> Wish me luck. I'm committed if, it, if, if, if things flare up, I'm going to, uh, I'll stop. And I have a friend that offered to come rescue me okay. if that happens. And my PT texted back. She's like, okay, good luck. Give me a call if anything, like if you need anything out there or if it flares up, we can work through, th- yeah. try to work through th- some things before you decide to stop. And amazingly, it felt great. Like nice. the whole ride. It hurt the worst, like three hours in. Okay. And then I rode for another, I think it was 55 hours was the whole effort. Nice. And 55 hours, single push. I stopped. Sleep. I stopped uh, the first night. It got really cold. Like oh, yeah. yep. the first night I was out in 25 degrees for like Damn. five hours. And I did not bring enough clothes for that. Yeah. And so I actually had to stop and crawl in my little sleeping bag for like half an hour just to warm up. Okay. And then I was back to pedaling. And then the second night I stopped for I think 20 minutes. Okay. And slept again for just a quick nap. And other than that, it's one of those like it's, I don't think it's the fastest way to just pedal straight for 55 hours yeah. to get through it. But that was the way I wanted to experience. And just 520 like miles? Yeah, 520. Okay. And, and do you remember what the previous fastest known time on it was? Because you set the fastest known time. Yeah, Neil Belchenko had it. Um, I was actually, I think, the first person to ride west to east on it. The race uh, used okay. to go east to west just because logistically for the shuttle, it was easier Got to it. shuttle people to the middle of nowhere start and yes. then ride back to yep. civilization, basically. Um, but for me, logistics were actually easier the other way around. And so I think I ended up about 90 minutes faster than okay. his time. So actually, but pretty damn close. Yeah, pretty close in the yeah, grand scheme cool. of things. That's fine. Yeah, and he like he didn't he didn't know anything about the route or had never ridden anything okay. beforehand. I didn't either. So we were both like definitely a little out of our element in yeah. a big, huge, dry landscape like that with just a few water sources along the way and a few resu- like I think I resupplied once like six hours in and then once 12 hours in okay. and then that was it like i wasn't going to hit any other stores during opening hours so. yeah so a 55 hour effort that's going to be you were out there for two nights or yep. two yeah nights. what did i yeah i must have finished like early afternoon early afternoon so, yeah so i guess this is kind of a good time and just like doing my previous research i'm always curious about like veterans relationship with sleep deprivation Mm -hmm. um you know there's like there's extremes to this where we have someone like sofian who it's like time on bike Mm -hmm. is what wins sofian bike races like Mm -hmm. he's a very strong bike racer but his ability to push like i don't even remember what his push was from the start of the divide this year but it was insane it was like 96 hours and he like will take these like small little 10 minute naps on the side of the road yeah and then you have the opposite end of the spectrum, which is someone like Lachlan Morton just set up, I, I don't know what the right term for this is, because it's not being recognized as the fastest no time. It was the, the fastest, fastest ride time, ever. <laughs> the fastest ride ever on the Colorado Trail, but it was documented. Whole other different conversation. But there's been multiple times where he's just like, I don't want to do this sleep deprivation thing. Yeah, like, well, his, been his, there, his first time on the trail which I can't remember if that was last year or the year before, but he ended up missing the record by like... It was like three like hours. Was, yeah, was, I think it was three it was hours. Tiny. But I think he slept something like 14 hours longer yep. than the prior or the current record holder, yes. Neil, at the time. 
it was which, like four hours to like 18 hours is somewhere yeah. in that range that he slept. Like yeah. Just... Which was, I mean, when I saw that, it was like, wow, he's, when he actually goes back and does it again, he's going to take so much time off. Yep. Um, and he did. But um, yeah, I, I think the sleep deprivation thing is a really slippery slope. Like I think, I think it's unfortunate how much in the bike packing world and like the ultra racing world in general, but more, I think the, the bike packing world, how much it's glorified. Okay. And yep. I think... I mean, there's, there's a lot of people out there that I've seen that, like, that's what they strive for. Or, like, as they're talking about their plan for the race, like, that's one of the big things on their mind. And, like, yeah, sleep strategy is really important. But I think having fun out there is way more important. And if you look at Sofian's, like, what he wrote and has shared about yeah. his Tour Divide ride this year, it sounds like he was really miserable for a lot of the ride. Yeah. And I mean, if I were that sleep deprived, I would be equally miserable. Yeah. Like, it's just hard to be in a positive mindset. It's hard to be looking around at where you are and taking it in and actually like drawing energy and enthusiasm from the landscape around you that you're riding through when you're too tired to even like take your eyes off the road feet yeah. in front of you. And like, yeah, for him that, that works. Like he's able to power through that. Um, Hefe Brenham's another one that, I mean, from early on, he was his ability to ride not necessarily fast, but really steadily with minimal sleep made him so formidable as a competitor. And then there were a couple years where he trained really hard and that got really fast too. So then he was not needing to sleep and had a ton of speed. And that, right, that's that oh, so Oh man, it's just yeah. like the sleep deprivation part gets yeah so much attention, but it's like he also is, I don't know, power numbers, but he's incredibly fit and rides yep. his bike a ton and was a bike messenger for decades yeah so it just has this massive base yeah so i don't i mean and it was really fun early on in the bike pack race scene like in the late 2000s that there were a bunch of us that were really experimenting with that and like we definitely thought like early in like the azt racing world that like maybe four hours a night was going to be fastest and yeah. that was for like a three-day race yeah which so clearly things have changed dramatically oh, yeah. since yeah. then <laughs> and i raced i did that race a I think I've done that nine times now, but early on, there were a few years where I wrote it just literally as an experiment because it was, you know, a few days. So it's not a huge time and energy investment, still big, but a manageable one. And there was one year when I went out and the goal was to not sleep and just see what happened. And I remember at the time, everyone was like, that's nuts. Like it, you shouldn't do that. Like we need to sleep. Like we need sleep in these things. Yeah. And I went out and I think I slept five minutes each night, like a power nap each night yeah. and took hours off my previous fastest time and was like whoa huh well i don't know if that was fastest but it's doable and so then there's you know kind of a pendulum swung way to one direction and then i think it swung a little bit back like some sleeps better but it really depends on the length of the event like two yeah. nights out some of us can definitely stay awake and alert and have fun and ride fast that whole time but once you get to three or four or five days or nights out then like then it changes and it's yeah. really variable depending on who you are and your tolerance and what kind of experience you want to have. And, and I think you said it right there is like who you are. And that's like, I'm like relatively new to the sport. And last year, like sleep deprivation was something that I almost like overdid mm -hmm. where I like started to do some like sleep deprivation rides where I'd be like, Oh, yeah. I'm going to like leave work at, 6, 7 p.m., mm -hmm. I'm going to get on my bike, I'm going to ride that entire night, and then I'm going to, like, 
I would never do it like into another work day, but yeah. into a weekend. Yep. And then I'm just going to try to stay awake for the rest of the day because I'm like, I don't want to like do these <laughs> massive like physical efforts, but I wanted to like figure out how I responded to yeah. sleep deprivation. I, it's like this really weird thing because it's like, honestly, there's part of me that like enjoys it in a weird sort of way, oh, I, like the I, hallucinations. Yeah, but at the same time, it's also like I've learned after doing, you know, a few of these events that it's like a razor's edge where if you go too far over, I'm absolutely worthless. Yeah. Where I'm just oh, it's, like, I'm barely totally pedaling. True. My yeah. whole body is shutting down. Everything takes. You're in molasses. I'm just like, what is going on? Why is it taking me so long to unwrap this granola bar? Why am I even stopped to unwrap this granola bar? I should be eating this while riding. And it's yeah. that, like very fine balance. But then at the same time, like there is, like you said, glorified. And I think of it as like, it's almost like romanticized in a way where it's mm-hmm. like in order to be at the very pointy end of these races, it's almost like necessary and it's yeah. like celebrated after the fact. But really with like Sofian, like just every once in a while, you know, I'm like in the race days behind him or whatever, hopefully not days, but <laughs> a while behind him. And I'm like watching his Instagram stories and I'm like, is he just going to crack and just like completely fall, fall apart? Because he was like, and I think that's one of the things, that's one of his skills is to just like walk that razor's edge where he's able to continue to move forward, but and, sleep so much less than everyone else. Yeah. And the more you do that, I think the more you learn where, like learn how to stay on that razor's edge, it changes like yeah. that, where that edge is changes. I think the more experience you have, like, I don't want to say you get better at being sleep deprived, but I think you can get better at managing it. But I don't think it's something that folks should go out and like practice in training like it's so yeah. hard on your body and that's one of the reasons that like i have no desire to go race tour divide again yeah. is because of the long-term implications of being really sleep deprived and it's one of the reasons i most like i'll do a couple ultras a year and really focus on kind of the shorter like two to five day two to four day ones at this point is to not get so sleep deprived during those um there's a book uh there's two books that I really recommend people read, but one of them is called Why We Sleep. I think it's by Matthew Walker. And it goes into so much of the physiology of just what happens while we're sleeping and also a lot about what happens when we don't sleep. Yep. And there's some really scary stuff, like well, uh, well-designed, long-term longitudinal studies of work, especially like people that work night shifts for a long time and only get their six hours of sleep or something like that. And it's not within normal circadian rhythm. And it's really detrimental in the long term. And so it's not like, you know, doing a couple ultra races a year is going to lead to the same health issues that those folks face. But if you're doing, you know, four or five big ultras a year and not a ton of recovery time in between them and really pushing that sleep deprivation envelope, um, that's like, that is something that I have a lot of concerns about. Doing long-term damage. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so I, I feel really fortunate that, like, in my career as an athlete, like, I don't, none of my sponsors are like, you should be doing more races, or you should, yeah. you know, you're an ultra racer, right? You should do more ultras. And, like, I don't necessarily even identify myself as an ultra racer. Like, I just think of myself as a mountain biker. Like, I like long rides. I like doing ultras. I really yeah. like what you were saying, like, with finding some enjoyment in the sleep deprivation side. Like, I definitely do, not in the sleep deprivation itself, per se, but... Like when I did Comstock this year, that was like, I wanted to ride all the way across the Nevada Great Basin with 
like just watching seeing everything all in one ride yeah and it was the same thing when i did um the grand loop a couple years ago i just i wanted to experience the whole thing in one push and like that was a very personal thing again like i said before i don't think it's the fastest way to do it but it was just the experience i wanted yep. while i was out there and that's not something that's interesting i've never had that like with the colorado trail i've never wanted to like even think about what it would be like to experience that in one push not that, like i don't have yeah. that same desire i could i also couldn't physically do that yeah um but in some of these uh shorter faster faster ultras like i think it is really interesting to just traverse these huge landscapes in you know feeling like it's one big ride yeah and i also again just kind of going back to that type of riding like i see it's just like when the terrain like dictates your speed i feel like it's easier to push the sleep deprivation when all you have to do is pedal like when the mental aspect of riding your bike is kind of like taken away Mm -hmm. where there's been a few times where i've been pushing like sleep deprivation in races and i hit a technical section Mm mm-hmm And it just like that speed dial just turns all the way down where when it's just right on this gravel road in a straight line, I'm able to do that. But it's like the minute I hit anything technical, it's like it's not worth it anymore. It's it's really funny that you say that because I'm the complete opposite. Oh, interesting. Okay. Of that. And so I think that probably gets back to what we were saying earlier about like it's it depends on who you are. And like in the Arizona Trail 300, the even just on the first night of it so if you start down by the border and race north it's a whole bunch of single track to tucson and then a bunch more single track part way up mount lemon and then you turn and get on the mount lemon highway yep. the paved road up to the summit and it's like three hours of of climbing on pavement oh, and okay. holy cow i can that's that three hour climb yeah. is the hardest part of the whole event for me because i cannot stay awake after being so focused yep. on hard trail and then suddenly you hit that in the wee hours in the morning and my brain's like, oh, I don't need to work anymore. Yeah. I'm done. And then, like, I cannot keep my eyes open. Yeah. And so that's, uh, yeah, I think if it's trail, like, I, it gives me something to focus on. And I do so much better. And so that, when I did Comstock, that was one of the challenges. For me, was it's, you know, a lot of steady pedaling and long miles. Like, you're going across some of these basins that are, you know, 90 minutes or two hours to get across. And there's just this mountain range out there hovering in the stars yep. the whole time. And it slowly grows, but you're just yeah. kind of feels like you're crawling. And I, I struggle so much just keeping focused. Like fighting off that sleep monster. Yeah. yeah. Now that you say that, like, I feel like there's definitely that, like, there's that fine balance where mm-hmm. if it is just like a perfectly straight paved road, that's when it's hard to stay. But like just on gravel roads, it's like fine balance, fine balance, difference for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like, like in terms of like the takeaway with training is like don't train sleep deprivation but at the same time if you're like are trying to do well in these races you need to do some like experimenting like you did with the 300 it's great to do that in a race environment it's yeah like if you don't have access to that then yeah maybe go out for a few but like really last year there was a point where i was just like i can't do this anymore like it is like negatively affecting other aspects of my life where i'm starting to be irritable at work for no other reason besides the fact that my circadian rhythm is just so messed up at this point i'm like this isn't worth it like my other training isn't going well because i'm just like tired yeah that's like this was a fun little experiment and i thought i was gonna like do it a bunch and i was like no 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 like we're yeah well kudos kudos for recognizing that sooner than later um yeah and i think that that is unfortunately a really easy way to quickly end up in kind of a, a mildly or fairly overtrained state is that you're sacrificing recovery and 
not allowing your, you know, doing these big rides, but not allowing your, your body to follow its normal rhythm yeah. afterward. And so that's, that's something that really quickly is going to kind of result in a downward spiral in terms of your, your performance or ability to train and just like cognition, which you were yeah. recognizing with the irritability and all that. So, so while we're on the topic of like the racing, because we're kind of about to transition into a little bit more of the adventure part of your year. One of the questions that I had that kind of came up just like doing my research before this conversation is heading into a bike race. Like, how do you think, like, what are the principles that you are like, this is how I'm going to win this race? Like, mm. Kurt lines up at a race. How are you planning on winning that race? You know, that's one of the harder questions someone's asked me in a while. <laughs> I'm glad I'm pulling out some good ones. No, that's a great one. And it was just a question and, that kind of like came up time and time again because it's like talking about Sofian. Like Sofian leaned so hard into, and I almost like have an answer for you, just like the super balanced attack. <laughs> but again, with that like extremes, it's like Sofian, sleep deprivation, Lachlan Morton, those world tour fitness, mm -hmm. you know, guys who are starting to like trickle into some bikepacking events where it's like you can't compete with guys who can do. 5.56 watts per kilogram because it's just like their zone two zone three is so much beyond yeah they're yeah their ability to ride fast like, is just so different and i'm just yeah. curious about like how do you think that you win bike races like what are the things that you're like this is what i need to execute on to do well in this yeah event? so i think i think there's a few things i think one is confidence and like that's i'm I try not to come across as cocky or anything like that, yeah. but having confidence in my own abilities and my ability to lean back on my experience doing these sorts of things to make good decisions, to plan well, um, and to know kind of where my limits are, like especially early in a race, like not riding too hard and keeping on the gas at the same time. And so I don't even necessarily think about how I'm going to win it. It's basically how can I move most efficiently and enjoy it the most and be as fit as I can for this particular race leading up to it. Um, and knowing that if I do all those things, I'm going to have a really strong ride. And, you know, winning a race is always dependent on who else shows up on yeah. any particular day. And there's, well, sometimes you know who it's going to be, but you have no control over that. And so, like, I always just lean on that like, I'm going to set myself up to have the best ride I can. And odds are, if things come together, if all that works, I've got a really good shot at winning it. You know, depending on what the event is. Like, yeah. I can't show up to, like, Pisgah Stage Race and be like, I'm, I got a really good shot at winning this. Yeah. When the reality is, I probably don't have a really good shot at winning it. But, man, if I can get them the podium, yeah. So that, like, that's where I'd maybe have a slightly different mindset. Um, but... And then I think there's also a discrete change that can sometimes happen during an event where suddenly you're in the competition and there's this question of like, okay, well, I'm halfway through or two thirds of the way through and here's where the competition is. Here's where the other riders are. What do I have to do now to win the race? And that can be a really, that's a really different position to be in. Um, but I think the leading, leading up to an event, like one is, is the training and the preparation and just knowing that at this point I have a really good feel for how to get myself ready for a particular event. And like we talked about earlier, the physical demands of that event. Um, another is the kind of the 
the strategy for that race, the planning of everything. And I think that's something like I probably put more time into really dialing in where this is more for Western races, but like where I'm going to get water, every source along the way, how reliable it is. Um, good estimates of how long it's going to take for each section of the route and how much food I'm going to need and exactly when I can get that along the way and like having a contingency that if like this place isn't open or like I'm a little behind schedule and can't get it there then I need this much extra to get to the next point and so basically having all the bases covered so that if things don't go as planned it's not a big setback Um, and so I've been really successful in in that aspect like I've it's been a long I can't even remember the last time that there's been a major setback in in an event other than me getting sick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so that's that's a big one because, you know, planning can make or break an event. Like if you run out of food or get to a place and miss miss it uh, when it's open to resupply by an hour or something like that, suddenly that's that's a big deal. And in the West here, like running out of water can be, I mean, it can literally be life or death. But yeah. in a lot of scenarios, it might not be death. But it's just like, ooh, suddenly you're in a really different place in terms of where you or compared to where you thought you might be in, in uh, your ability to keep keep moving steadily and keep on the gas. And so and then during during the race, I think then there's, there's the thinking about the competition. And for the first, I mean, man, for these races, like the first two thirds, probably I'll really try to just focus on myself yeah. and not be racing anyone else. It's too easy to get caught up and distracted by what other people are doing so that you're pushing too hard or you're not riding quite as hard as you could be because you're staying with them or, um, you know, changing your sleep strategy because of somebody else being nearby and not wanting to let them get a gap or something like that. But then late in a race, like you do have to start thinking about where everything is. And if you are able to really take care of yourself early on in a race, that puts you in a much better place to adapt and approach things a little differently late in a race. Whereas if somebody else has been looking at their competition and, you know, not sleeping as much as they should be or riding a little harder, they might be at their limit the whole time. And when it comes down to the late, later stages of the race, they might not have any opportunity to push harder or yeah. change their approach. And so that was when um, when I did the Iditarod Trail 350 a couple of years ago, three years ago now, like I was so out of my element in that race. Like winter stuff is not my forte at all. Yeah. I've never ridden in cold conditions. It got down to minus 45. And that was one a nice second like you had yeah, qualified I, and then you went straight into the Iditarod, yeah. right, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And it wasn't a goal to go do that race, but because I qualified at Fat Pursuit, I was like, maybe I should jump on this opportunity because yeah, yeah. I'd followed the Iditarod for years and was yeah. so fascinated yeah. by it and always was in awe of the people that were able to thrive in those conditions, or at least they seemed like they're thriving. Uh, and so in that race, I ended up most of the race near or with these uh, two other yeah. Alaskans, um, Clinton Hodges and uh, Tyson Flaherty. And I mean, they had both been on the podium numerous times. I think Tyson had won it the year before. And they both live out there. So, like, they're so accustomed to winter. And Tyson's, like, former U.S. National Nordic Ski Team member. Like, okay. has a yeah. massive engine. Just, like, a super talented athlete. Um, and they're both, like, disarmingly nice and friendly. <laughs> and, like, you know... So, being around them, it's really easy to just forget that they're amazingly strong riders and so experienced in that. But we kind of went back and forth a bunch um, early in the race and we're like taking turns post-holing through the tough conditions at times. 
and like kind of legitimately working together because it's like a safety thing it's a, a mental thing and it was just it's the easiest way to make it through tough snow conditions and then it literally came down to the last morning we had 50 miles to go from the last checkpoint and then suddenly it was like wow this is like a legitimate race like and my mind was back to like road race type days and strategy of thinking about like okay how can I get away from them the whole race up until that point I was just letting them kind of set the pace yeah and I was you know just focused on trying to take care of myself in those conditions and then I finally was willing to like make a move yeah. late in the race and it was you didn't just... want to sit, wait for a field sprint, field <laughs> field sprint, three well, guys on fat bikes. <laughs> ironically, that was how I won Fat Pursuit and oh, okay. qualified for ITI. Was um, it was Neil Belchenko and I racing oh, each nice. other the whole for two hundred miles, and with like I forget what we were at the, at the last checkpoint in like thirty miles to go or something like that, and conditions were kind of bad, and we weren't feeling very like we were both pretty thrashed yep. at that point. And the guy working the checkpoint who was making pancakes for everyone was like, so how's this going to end? And, <laughs> and Neil and I were in days and just like staring off into space. And I don't remember who said it. I think Neil had suggested like, well, maybe we should just like start racing from like this point and race the last yep. 10 miles in. And like, I had no idea what he was talking about. And so I mentioned that. And then the, the guy at the checkpoint, it was, I think he was like, well, you could, you could race from the road at like, four miles in and then I was like oh like, yeah sure that could work or we could just sprint at the end and I don't remember if I was serious or joking but Neil seemed fine with it and so I was like oh okay well we'll just work together through the last 30 miles and then yeah. it'll be a sprint in the parking lot yeah. and that you know in the back of my mind I'm like I used to actually have a pretty good sprint when I was racing cross so I'll just I'll just lean on that Neil still doesn't know what's there. coming Neil doesn't know what's coming <laughs> and yeah, it ended up literally a parking lot sprint for like 200 feet, and I just made sure I had the inside line on the turn, and it was easily enough to you get just the turn that in. cyclocross racer back in. You yeah, were ready and to go. That's what qualified for me for the ITI, which okay. I think is the most inappropriate way to qualify for a race across Alaska, uh, but it technically did. Um, but yeah, so those instincts came yeah. back in the last 50 miles, and I managed to like attack super hard when I like they had a lull, and you know I'd kind of thought about it. A bit but not super hard and then it was just that instinct of like okay you just need to get out of sight yep and it was like i just need to get through this through the swamp and back into the trees on the other side and i did and i looked back and they were still like you can see them and yep. then i pop out another swamp that was a little longer it's like okay i just need to get out of sight on this one and this went on for like an hour that each swamp was longer than the next or the last oh damn okay. and to the point that like some of these lakes you were crossing were probably like half a mile and so I was just like, had to be fully on the gas for so, but it was really fun because suddenly it felt like we were in a day race and we had just spent like, you know, and This sounds like road days. race tactics yeah. where it's like out of sight and yeah. it's hilarious that it's, but it's not a road race. And so you just have to keep on going because it's like in a road race, you're not out of sight after that initial attack. You might as well just sit up and go back exactly. to the Peloton, but yeah. it's three three person peloton there's not a Peloton. It's just like a drag race. Yeah, it really point. was. That's awesome. And so it, it, it felt like. It was four days of racing to get to the race. Nice. And then it was yep. 50 miles of racing that I actually didn't think about the reality that I didn't know what trail conditions were going to be. So 50 miles could be seven hours if yeah. it's quick, or it could be a lot longer than that if it's not. But the really awesome part of that was that all of taking good care of myself and eating a ton 
for the days leading up to that meant that my body, like I was tired. I was yeah. really tired, but I was still in a really good place physically and mentally. And so I was able to really focus and still had a lot in my legs that I could just dig deep for it ended up being, I think, a seven hour effort to get to the end. And I had no idea where they were. And so I just couldn't like, I knew they were more than half a mile behind me. That was it. Yeah. And so I just had to stay on the gas the whole time and just keep eating, keep eating, keep eating. Yeah. And up there was also super committing that like, once you're going that hard, you're just going to sweat through everything that you're wearing. And so that, then it was like that scenario of like, okay, if it goes well, I'll get to the end. And if it doesn't, then I'm going to have to stop and like really reassess and take care of myself yeah. for a little bit. And amazingly it paid off. But that was, I think that was one of the, the things I was most proud of in any ultra in a while was just how the, the taking care of myself really well for the first part of the race allowed me to do what I needed to do in the last part of it. Yeah. And like finish strong. That's again, something that I've just been like working on because there's this whole idea that you need to finish these races and be just completely drained and mm -hmm. empty. But it's almost like that idea of just like finishing strong, like mm -hmm. actually having the energy at the end to finish strong and then empty the tank. But exactly. Don't exactly. Like, like I, yeah, don't like have it a conscious like empty crawling into the finish line. Right. Yes. There's a difference between that and having the ability to pick up the pace, sprint to the finish yep. line. So yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Very cool. Very cool. So I guess now we'll roll or move into kind of the adventure side of your year. Mm -hmm. um, the next thing I have is the Alpine 7 project, which we yeah. watched the film debut last night mm -hmm. at the Pivot Protect Our Winters talk yesterday. Yeah. So I guess my question with that is like, how did that trail, that project kind of like come onto your radar initially? There wasn't a whole bunch of, there's a little background in the film about mm -hmm. like the early origins of that trail, but yeah, so Kate like very much like took this project on as like, let's open this up. Like, let's make this a thing. Yeah. So, it, so we ended up, what was it? Was it during the pandemic? Yeah, it was during the pandemic. So, um, 2020, I think in the fall, I was up in Idaho and I think I was probably staying in Kate and Will's yard at that point. And I think it was probably August will decided that he was going to ride the western wildlands route okay with a friend and so kate was going to drive him up to the border to drop drop them off at the canadian border so they could start their ride and so i think she and i were looking at what big rides we could do up in that part of the world and i had the idea of trying to do a, a big loop around the bob marshall wilderness and one of the trails that runs parallel to that that's open to bikes like just outside the wilderness is the alpine seven and a friend of mine had done some riding there uh, early in the summer, and he was just raving about how good it was. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of it. And, like, it's on trail forks in different pieces, and it's okay. not, you know, it doesn't say anything fantastic about it. Uh, but, so that was on, on my radar, and I think we started the loop. This was, like, an ambitious 500-mile loop, starting with an incredibly challenging, like, day and a half of single track up on the Ridgecrest. Yeah. And, unfortunately, there was a winter storm that, came in and we ended up having to bail off the plans for the big loop but we still rode the alpine seven part of it and we're just blown away at how incredible it was i mean it's like 75 miles of mostly gorgeous ridgeline riding quite demanding in places and then there's this one section of like four miles where the trail drops off the ridge down into a valley and then climbs back up to regain so basically it bypasses a really rugged mountain and there's like four miles of horribly overgrown 
stuff in there. Like this, the tread is still under there, but yep. it's like hadn't been maintained in a really long time. And so like we made it through that. I think we camped in the middle of it actually and finished, finished the hike the next day and continued on. And then I think we were both inspired enough by the trail to like reach out to some local folks and find out more about it. And then that's when we um, got in touch with, with this guy, Caleb Ambrose up there who had tried to ride it the, the full length of the trail. And it sounded like nobody had ever actually succeeded in the full length of the trail in a day. And so I think I had, I think Kate and I both were interested in trying to do that. Yeah. And Caleb had with a few friends, one of whom was killed in an avalanche, the, uh, I think two winters before. And so Caleb and this guy, Matt, were really interested in going back and trying to finish the whole thing in a day, yeah. kind of in memory uh, of Ben. And so there, there was this enthusiasm to do some work on that Posey Creek section to, to clear out um, the horribly overgrown stuff. And so between them and a few other folks from up there, uh, we started some conversations with the Flathead Area Mountain Bikers, which is their local advocacy group. And they were supportive of, of uh, doing some work up there. And so we had a plan, um, what would have been the second summer of the pandemic, to have a, a trail work weekend up there and see if we could get the like most of that four miles opened up. And it was like all set to happen. And then the fire danger got really high and they put okay. restrictions yeah. into effect and we wouldn't have been able to use brush saws on the trail, which meant it would all be by hand. And so all of us were like, uh, <laughs> let's postpone it a year. Yeah. And the beauty of that was then that the uh, Flathead Air Mountain Bikers were able to get a bunch of support from the Great American Outdoors Act, so federal funding through the Forest Service, to cover their expenses for like nice. a week of work up there with their paid trail crew. And so this summer, the, their paid trail crew got out there with, with the brush saws for, I think, two different two-day hitches. And it's, it's so hard. They put in so much work doing that. And then um, we organized a volunteer, just a, like... I think we we're gonna do like a day and a half on a weekend to clear all the debris that the trail crew left behind so they basically just went through and, and cut everything and, and we did the swamping afterward and unfortunately there was so much else going on that weekend that we weren't able to rally any volunteers to do the like three hour drive to get out okay. to the work area and so it was kate and me that went out there yeah. together and we ended up clearing like a big chunk of what they had um had cut and then so the trail i think like three and a half miles of it got opened and there's another like half mile of a nearby trail that needs to be cleared but it's so much better than it was and last summer after the canceled trail event um caleb and matt went back up there and they succeeded in doing the whole thing in a day nice and so they i think they it took them 16 or 17 hours i think 17 hours to do the whole thing and so they were stoked to to be the first ones to accomplish that and then this summer when we when Kate and I were up there it was still too snowy to do the full full thing but I I went back up there in September and did the whole thing in a day nice. which was a really fun and really it was my my second hardest day on the bike this year I think after <laughs> that it. uh the fat pursuit back in January okay but it was really rewarding to be able to to ride the whole thing to be able to get through Posey Creek without too much uh, struggle this time and so and yeah fam was able to dedicate a bunch of time to a very backcountry trail that's you know it's really hard to motivate trail organizations to dedicate time understandably to things that are way out there yeah that aren't going to see a ton of use but yeah. it's really cool that fam does some of that on this trail and some other ones in that area and so um i know a couple people that went up and have ridden big chunks of alpine seven since then hopefully nice. more 
more do next year. But the film um, Along the Swan that we put together is just kind of the story of that that effort um, and the story of the trail itself. And the whole goal is just like spread the word about some of the, you know, working together for, for really backcountry trails. Yeah. And hopefully Pham's able to use that for some fundraising needs of their own. So Nice. Very cool. Very cool. Great yeah. film. Enjoyed it. Thanks. Just like <laughs> totally different riding to anything that I have dabbled into yeah. so it's and really like that trail and like that work in a way kind of bleeds into your other big trip this year which was going back to the alps mm-hmm. with kate and doing these like massive days a lot of the presentation yesterday was kind of about it i don't even know if i have all that many questions about it, it just seems, it just <laughs> yeah, seems it's like, like almost a, really a whole cool, other conversation it's a whole other conversation but again it just seems like so like, that's one of the things that I, like, just looking at your schedule and looking at what you did this year, it's just, like, it just seems like you have, like, such a great balance of, okay, I'm going to go do this 520-mile FKT effort, but then I'm also going to, like, go to Europe and, yeah, like, and like, do these, like, really cool descents and all that. So, I guess, like, I guess my question is, is, like, what, I guess, what, what were some of the highlights of that Alps trip? Like, what was, also, like, what was the motivation to you and Kate went to the Alps and tried to do this massive traverse back in 2011, I think? 2014, I think. 14, Yeah, okay. so that, like, we want to try to traverse the whole length of the Alps in single track. Yep. That was the goal. Yep. And then we started drawing lines and realized that that would be, like, 1,600 miles of single track and that we couldn't do that in a month. Yeah. And so then it was more like, well, maybe we can do half the Alps. Yep. And we did. And it was mostly on trail and it was incredibly difficult. Like I think I think it was eight hundred miles with two hundred thousand feet of climbing, which was a lot on trail. And we didn't we can't, we basically didn't use any of the huts along the way. Like we couldn't afford the little I mean they're not that expensive, but we, we didn't have money for that. We didn't use any lifts or gondolas. Yeah. You know, all in the like self supported style, I guess. Yeah. By necessity, not necessarily for sake of purity or i hate that i hate that word for this kind of thing but that was just the way that we could do it and it was amazing and it was exhausting and i remember coming back and feeling like i needed a month of vacation to recover from that trip because (laughs) it was just so challenging and but the riding there is incredible and and i think what it really opened our eyes to the reality that in the alps you can you can link up anything you want on trail like there's just so many trails they're almost all open to bikes you wouldn't necessarily want to take a bike on a lot of them but you could and so our goal for this trip was to go back and try to ride as much good trail up high as we could. Big descents, big ridge lines. On that first trip, we kind of, it was like up and over passes. Yep. And just trying to like get to the next pass and get to the next pass. Yep. And we didn't really spend much time like on ridges or anything like that. Because, I mean, that kind of riding is hard on a fully loaded bike, especially on a hardtail back then. And it was, you know, it wasn't necessarily the most efficient way to keep making, making headway. And also back then, like, it was hard to find information about trails. Like, yep. so much of that route was from drawing lines on maps where I saw little dashed lines and not knowing anything about what it was going to be like. Yeah. And we got so lucky that most of it panned out really well. You're not able to, like, crowdsource the information. No, like, and, like, yeah, and this time, yeah, yeah. like, planning it, there's Riders GPS heat maps, there's Strava heat maps, there's Trail Forks, there's all these different apps that are, like, unique to Switzerland or unique to Italy that have more information about the trails and then there's folks that you know we when we were over there one of the goals was also to like ask people where we should go and then yeah. actually listen to them instead of stubbornly trying to follow this line that we drew from thousands of miles away not knowing anything about what was actually on the ground there yeah. and so that yeah so this trip we want to ride up high we want to ride big descents we we're on trail bikes instead of hardtails and we wanted to stay in huts 
along the way and use gondolas to basically allow us to travel as light as possible so that we just had like little handlebar bags and small backpacks basically and uh, spend as much time up high not spend time getting too up yeah. high uh, by pedaling up everything and then also we, we decided we didn't want to like try to do one long route we wanted to ride in a few different places and so it ended up being kind of four three to five day trips over the course of the month that we were there so everything about it was a completely different approach i had never done like a hut to hut style yeah trip I mean, you can't do those in the u.s aside from i mean there's a few different places like the you can san juan do, like, huts yeah and, san juan yeah. the new aquarius yep. um, trail hut system and those i mean all of those are just like a handful of days yeah and that's it and you're kind of there's one route you follow yep. whereas in europe you can i mean there's huts everywhere you can yeah. go anywhere you want you just have to know where they are to plan out and figure out how to make reservations for them uh, which is an interesting challenge sometimes but yeah so that was a big goal that that we wanted to to try and it worked out amazingly well. We found some incredible riding over there. And like that was definitely a very major highlight of the year. Probably yeah. the last few years was was that that trip and that style of riding. Um, and it's, yeah, I think like I need that. Kate as an athlete needs that kind of thing. Like we're not, and that's one of the things about our team that we founded. Like we're not necessarily just a team that's about racing. Yeah. It's kind of unconventional in that way that like a big chunk of what we do is around adventure. A big chunk yeah. is around advocacy and stewardship stuff. And then there is racing yeah. also. And I think we're really fortunate that our sponsors put a lot of value in all of those things. And also don't put any pressure on us to do more or less of any one part of it. Yeah. which is like I feel so fortunate that they have the the confidence in us to just kind of plan out what we want to do and let us run with it. Yeah. So that's I mean, I think that's the result of just like a decade plus of gradually figuring out what works for us and how to share that with people in a really genuine way and make it about I mean so much what we do is about the experiences and not like about us as athletes yeah. and that's what so many of our our sponsors want it to be about is like not about who you are directly or like about that result you had, but about the experience that's that was out there and yeah. that other people could chase, you know, maybe similar experiences. Yeah. So that's, that's been, been fantastic. And I think the team will be around again next year. Uh, everybody that was, was helping out to make it happen last year is so super excited about it. It's been really fun to be part of. And the reception around the country from folks has been, so much more than we expected like yeah, people sure. were yeah yeah like i was out just like in the beginning the rockstar 270 riding with a guy that was like how did you create that like that's so cool like i haven't heard of a bike team that isn't really just about the racing side of things yeah i think we need more of that yep and so like hearing people with that kind of reaction was really inspiring to you know like cool we are doing something that's you know different but liked yeah like my, one of my biggest takeaways from the presentation and you just talking about it is I love that sort of like that maturity of that first time that you go out to the Alps mm -hmm. and you almost like bring that like very American, Western American <laughs> oh, totally, mentality oh, totally, of yeah. we're doing the self-supported, we're tent camping, we're, we're not listening to what traverse. you say we should do, we're doing it our way. <laughs> yes. And then this time around, it's like, you know what, we're going to actually like have a cultural experience and take the input from the locals and the story that you were telling, like your favorite trail mm -hmm. wasn't ever a consideration we until you were at some restaurant or some bar and some guy's like, oh, you need to go do that. And you're like, oh, let's totally change our plans yeah. and go ride 
the locals' favorite trail rather than being like, no, no, we have to stick to the plan. So. Yeah, and it was so worth it. Yeah, that and bartender just like, was so correct that that was one yeah. of the best trails around. And just like your your and Kate's maturity of like realizing that, not going mm-hmm. in there hard headed, but also I think that's like in a way kind of the sport maturing in a way where you know like traversing the Alps and doing this like really incredible endeavor is super cool but it's also something that most people aren't going to do right like you and kate are world-class athletes kate's a former world champion like that is very few people could ever actually go do that Mm -hmm. but and like yeah totally different culture of mountain biking and we were talking last night about just like the prevalence of e-bikes on the trails and how it's just become this very accessible way of Mm -hmm. riding mountain bikes which I think we're both in agreement. It's like more people on bikes, the better. And it's yeah. like, let's get yep. people into this. And just like that style where you can enjoy the back country and it doesn't have to be this type two sort of enjoyment of, you know, just looking at though. I don't have the numbers here, but like the numbers in terms of like <laughs> just absolutely massive elevation gain and like descent, especially descending. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think we had twice as much descending as we had climbing Yep, and I think we had like i don't remember sixty-five thousand feet of climbing or something and like one hundred twenty thousand feet of descending between those four trips it was incredible like and any i don't want to say anyone can do that but it's so much more accessible to do that sort of thing hut to hut and using these lifts along the way and like i had a great email exchange afterward with joe lawwell who like former world caliber downhill racer and he's um shimano's athlete manager now for the, the mountain bike side and it sounds like he's never been bike packing but he's like huh Hut to hut bike packing. Yeah. I could do that. Yep. That sounds fun. Which one of these routes would you recommend I try? Yeah. <laughs> and yep. like we we heard from so many people that have that kind of attitude, which is really cool to like, you know, hut to hut isn't necessarily my style. Like when we were over there, I was really missing just like camping out in the middle of nowhere without anybody else. Yep. Um, being served a four course meal feels so awkward to me like yeah. having somebody waiting on me and like but these huts like that's what they're there for is to serve good food and they yeah. have great cooks that come up and help out and then also sharing a bunk room with like eight other people ten yeah. other people sometimes it's like one long bunk bed yeah. the mattresses are just like literally three feet wide and right against one another and you're just all sleeping in a row like sardines I'm like yeah it's, I'd, I'd rather be camping out on my own somewhere but it is a way of travel that so many people could do and that's i think that's one reason that backpacking is so popular out there is because people can do it hut to hut with small backpacks they don't need to carry a ton of gear and you know you're never that far out for multiple days that you need to worry about carrying a ton of food or where water is going to be and so there's so many people out there backpacking all the time whereas you know you go out so many places around here you see people on like the arizona trail or you know certain wilderness areas that are a little more popular but you don't run into backpackers everywhere you're riding yeah and over there it's so different so where i guess this is this is a little bit of a hard pivot but it's something that (laughs) i we talked about a little bit before we started recording and it's that it's i guess it's that balance of like accessibility in the sport Mm -hmm. but then also certain things being very very challenging where you need a certain skill level, you need a certain experience level. And this is kind of in reference to, I don't want to call it the fiasco that was this year's like Tour Divide Grand Apart, mm-hmm. but it's something that like I was at the Grand Apart. I wasn't really involved with it because mm-hmm. thankfully I was fast enough to get 
out of the kind of mass. You, you were ahead and, like, of the I weather. I yeah. got ahead of the weather. The worst of the weather. <laughs> yeah. But just, like, from your, like, perspective as someone who's been in the sport for so long, I guess, like, do you have any thoughts on, like, the future of bikepack racing, the future of these, like, really, really hard events, which I want, like, participation, mm-hmm. right? Like, I want more people yeah. bikepacking. But then at the same time, it's also, like, there's this whole, like, building up to it and, like, knowing your limits. And, yeah, it's kind of, like, a weird, like, I don't want to, like, like, qualifying events, right? Mm-hmm. For some things, it makes perfect sense, right? Like, the Iditarod is a dangerous enough event that you need to mm-hmm. have Yeah, you need to dem- demonstrate skills. that you have yeah. some experience and the skill set to take care of yourself out there because no one's going to come rescue you when things go south. Like, that's just the reality of that, yeah. that event. Um, I guess my question is, like, do you eventually see, like, qualifying events being necessary? Because it's so weird with something like the Tour Divide, which is such a grassroots, unorganized event. Mm-hmm. And that's why people love it. Like, that is why it is still, like, the granddaddy of bikepacking races. Yeah. And, you know, there's then kind of a different end of the spectrum with, like, the Silk Road Mountain Race or the Atlas Road Mountain Race where there's, like, a whole race organization and mm-hmm. there's, you know, this kind of bleeds into the media conversation where they actually have, like, media vehicles yeah. documenting the race. And yeah, it's, like, so much more structured. The course. And it's, like, trying to find that fine balance because... There was nine search and rescues, something like something that. Something like yeah. that at the divide, and it's like that's the sort of thing that, as someone who's like just entering the sport, who wants to do the divide multiple times in the future, like that scares me because mm-hmm. it's like once you start putting a whole bunch of strain on local resources, yep, that's when bureaucrats become involved in this yep. sort of thing, and it's like. Yeah, with I mean, the Tour Divide, there's no permits. Like, yeah. it is not even a race. It's a group of people showing up and doing this almost like alley cat bikepacking yeah. race. Yeah, and like, a few days no in, feed, they're so there's... spread out, yeah. no one would even recognize that there's something yeah. going on. Um, yeah, and I mean, nine rescues, that's a big percentage of the field. I mean, I don't know what the start size was this year, but that's got to be like 7% of the racers or something like that. And now it's the other thing and is that there were so many people. This was the first year at the divide that they ever sent oh, yeah, groups out in waves right. because it was like a hundred, I think it was 175 people. Jeez. Yeah. We're at the start. And that's another thing. It's like, I want everyone to have the opportunity to ride the course. I only saw two thirds of it, but it's mm-hmm. absolutely gorgeous. Like yeah. it's incredible. Yeah. It's a fantastic yeah. experience. Yeah, it really is. Um, yeah. I think, I mean, racing is such an interesting thing because I think the racing has been so important and influential for the expansion of the sport of bikepacking and for people, like, for its visibility and people like, hey, cool, that looks fun. Like, I want to try that. And most of those people don't actually try racing ever. Um, I think in, in surveying that Bikepacking Roots has been doing, I think last year, two years ago, we did a survey that had, like, I think 3,000 respondents, 1% were interested in racing. Yep. 1%. <laughs> and these were all the people that, that filled out the survey were either like kind of current bike packers or aspiring bike packers. Yeah. And 1% were interested in racing. So yeah. like even though the racing side of things gets huge visibility, um, especially certain websites put so much emphasis on the racing side of things, most people are never going to do it. Yeah. Most of those people don't care about it at all. 
and yet it still has had such a strong influence on the kind of bikepacking community and yeah. the growth of it. Um, I think Tour Divide is actually, I think probably the most problematic of races in terms of being something that a lot of folks that, I mean, I've heard from so many folks that haven't even been riding bikes for very long, that that's their goal. Like they somehow heard about it. They watched Ride the Divide, whatever. And they're like, I'm going to do that race. I'm going to do Tour Divide, which is rad that there's something out there that can capture people's attention when it's, you know, not even something that they do, that that person does already. But that's where the problem comes in is that you can very easily get in over your head in an event that big, that long, that yeah. remote in places. I mean, I think some of the most remote stuff is that first bit in Canada. Yes, for um, sure. Of, of the entire route, probably until you get to New Mexico. And so it is so easy to get super excited about it, prepare for it as best you think is possible. But if you've never done something like that before, if you don't have backcountry experience before, you don't even know what you need to do to necessarily be fully ready for it. And that's where the problem is, is that there's no... I don't know. There's no great resource for folks to know or to look at to see like, what do I need to know how to do to do that race and not yeah. get in trouble? Everything from like all the different things that could go wrong with a bike and knowing how to repair those so that you can be self-sufficient or at least as self-sufficient as possible in the really remote sections of it to knowing that you really need to pay attention to the weather and know what's coming and know what that might mean for the high passes along the way yeah. that you maybe shouldn't go out there in those conditions to also recognizing that like people at the front of the field and what they're carrying is you know probably one a bit of a gamble two based on probably a lot more experience doing that sort of thing and knowing their own limits and knowing how to really take care of themselves in tough situations and three, having been through tough situations and knowing like maybe extra things that they should carry for those that the normal person might not think to carry yeah. and really being comfortable and proficient doing a lot with minimal supplies and equipment and gear. And so that you end up with a lot of first timers emulating that setup and being yeah. really focused, like needing to have a, you know, no backpack, minimal bags on their bikes everything really small, keeping weight under like, you know, whatever, some certain threshold that they decide is how light their setup should yeah. be. And so that means that they're probably less prepared than they should be based on their experience and then throw them in a really challenging situation like an injury or a bike issue or really bad weather or yeah. a couple of those at once. Then things snowball really fast. And I think that's where folks that just don't have the experience don't necessarily foresee how things can snowball like that and how quickly things can get really serious and so i don't like i don't think qualifying races are ever going to be a solution for yeah. that because so many races you could get through without having a snowstorm yeah. that puts you in a really bad spot and you know you could come down and do like a gravel race in arizona and have gorgeous weather the whole time and carry almost nothing yeah and you'd be fine yeah. or like me qualifying for the iti from fat pursuit and winning a sprint there is no way I was actually qualified to yeah. go race across Alaska. Yeah. Like that then I put a bunch of time the next winter into getting more comfortable winter camping and making sure I was really good at doing things in the cold. And even then I ended up in temperatures 30 degrees colder than I've ever ridden in yeah. and was like, shit, this is serious. Like this is where I need to really, like I can't let anything go wrong right now because I'm at my limit and I'm out in the middle of nowhere here. Yeah. Um, That's also... 
the one other thing that I think like happens at the poignant of these races is just the ability to like out fitness or like fitness out of things where that's something that I have had to try to not rely on where it's like, Oh, I actually need to make sure that I am prepared for these situations and not think, Oh, I can just ride out of it because it's like in a lot of instances, that's what I can do. Like I have the ability to just put my head down and it's like, okay, we're not pacing for, the next 2000 miles I'm pacing for the next 20 miles and I'm getting out of this situation exactly. and I just yeah. am able to turn it to a level that allows me to very quickly get to safety, but not everyone has that. Yeah. That's like, and I think beyond that also somebody, I think when conditions get challenging, that's when people with the most experience know and can focus on taking care of themselves really well. And that means they're physically and mentally in a good place to deal with the external challenges. Yeah. But folks that are newer or have never been in that kind of situation before, like they're going to be so focused on just moving forward that taking care of themselves, like whether it's making sure they're warm enough or that they're eating enough or that they're actually staying hydrated, even though it's snowing out, like that's when those things fall by the wayside. And as that starts to fall apart, then everything starts to fall apart. And that's when situations get really serious really quickly. Um, and I mean, the, the fitness thing you bring up is a really good one too. And just the confidence side that like that really cold night in Iditarod, I mean, it helped that there were three of us within like sight of each other. Like we could see each other's lights. And so, you know, you're out there, but there's other people around you. It's not safe to re- or fair to rely on them to help you if something goes wrong, but that does give you a little bit of confidence that like at least you're not alone out there. But that situation for me was one that hit home really hard because I had made a bit of a gamble on uh, my sleep system for that race. I was like, I'm not planning to sleep outside. I'm going to bring enough that if I need to, I can. And so that was a bivy. I think I had a minus 15 bag because the forecast for the lows was minus, I think minus 20, minus 23 or something. And so I was like, oh, between all my clothes and that, like, I can be okay if I need to stop and sleep for a few hours or something goes wrong. But then conditions got 20 degrees colder than the forecast lows. And I was like, I can't stop. Like, I I really yeah. have to just keep moving. I'm wearing everything I have. I'm moving steadily. And at that point, we were walking because the trail was so soft. You couldn't ride. And I was barely warm enough. And so that was one of those situations. It's like, I have to keep moving. Yeah. Like, I, I literally can't stop. And so you just move and eat and move and eat. And if you are too tired to do that, or if you haven't been taking care of yourself up until that point, and that's not possible, that's again, when things go really far south. And so I think it really, you know, it's, it's on people to get experience on their own. And I think just going out and doing bikepacking trips, even if it's like a night or two, you learn so much and yeah. do some of those purposefully in bad conditions, like go in the rain. And see what it's like. See if your stuff actually all stays dry. Recognize that most bike packing bags out there aren't waterproof, even if they're made of waterproof fabric. And your stuff in them will get wet. Yeah. So with kind of talking about that accessibility, like would love for you to talk about the work that you're doing with bike packing routes. Like mm-hmm. you're no longer the director. You've kind of passed that on, but you're mm-hmm. still super involved in it. That was kind of one of the last things that you did in this year yeah. was go out to Arkansas and do a gathering summit. Yep. I'm not sure what exactly yep. you called about it. I but think we called it a gathering. Yeah, cool. bikepacking routes gathering. gathering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you just want to talk about like what are you doing with bikepacking routes? Like what's kind of the goal? I know you've touched on it on other podcasts, mm-hmm. but like what is kind of the goal with bikepacking? Yeah, so we founded bikepacking routes in what, 2017, I think? 
So we've been out for five years now. Yeah. I think we're up to 8,000 members or so. Most, and you say we, around the country. you and Kate. Yeah, Kate, Kate so Boyle. Kate was my yeah. co-founder yep. um, with that. And then I ended up being the ED for four years, okay. I think. And then moved on from that. Last year, we hired Allie Johnson, who is, uh, she lives in Salt Lake City. Nice. She's been our ED for about a year now. And at that point, I stepped back. I mean, it was basically the ED role was getting to be close to needing to be full-time. Yeah. And that was more than I could commit to. And yeah. I think we'd kind of reached the limits of where my skill sets in that um, could like continue to help the organization grow the way we wanted to see it grow and the way the board wants to see it grow. And so it was really good to bring on Allie with very different background and very different vision. And um, she's been amazing to have in that position. And then I stepped back into just a mostly a routes, routes focused, a little bit of advocacy work. Um, so I think my title's routes director yes. at this point. And the, I mean, the organization itself was founded with kind of, I think, three different main goals. Like one was creating really exceptional routes and really uh, exceptional route resources to go along with those to help people get out onto those routes. Yeah. And so, you know, we have a mix of small and big routes, really nice guidebooks for, for the bigger ones. And a lot of the routes are designed with like a very specific educational purpose. Also, like the Bears Ears loops were all designed around helping people experience that and understand what's at stake in the preservation of that landscape. The Western Wildlands route is a big public lands focus on it. Um, and so the guides include a bunch of educational material about those. Yeah. And so, so the, the route development was one, one part of it, kind of education advocacy was another big part of it. And, you know, at the, that point, I mean, even still today, there's not, there's, there aren't other groups that are really involved on a national scale in, in advocacy for the places we ride. And, yep aren't someone that bike packers can turn to and be like, hey, there's an, this issue arising in this area. Like, what can we do about yeah. it? And so it's been really fun to be able to interface with local bike packers in different places and see what we can do to help with some of those issues this year. And I think late last year, we've been really involved with um, Adventure Cycling Association and IMBA on the, um, what is it called? The Bikes on Long Distance Trails Act is okay. the, the full name for it. So it's federal legislation that's been making its way through the Senate and the House. And the whole vision is long distance trails on public lands. And this first, the, this bill is, is specifically for visioning of what those trails are, identifying potential. There's no funding tied to it yet. Yeah. It's next to impossible to pass things with funding uh, right now through Congress. And so uh, uh, the three, our three organizations have all, all been working really closely together on kind of coordinating with um, with each other on messaging, on outreach to the community. I think we had a joint kind of comment writing campaign with Adventure Cycling, and I think we had 7,000 letters received, I think, from the bikepacking, bike touring community in support of that. And that helped move the, the bill out of committee, and it's uh, passed in... I think it was passed in the House, and it's out of committee in the Senate. Okay. So it's a good chunk of the way through. It's in. It's a really f- neat. It's it's one of those weird things that in Congress, both Republicans and Democrats recognize this and a couple of their public land bills that it's tied to as non-controversial, and nice, they're like, "Hey, nice. this is actually something we can move forward. So we <laughs> should move this forward so we can show we're doing something." And so that's why it's been moving forward. Very and cool. I think it got, it's gotten understandably very derailed with the war in Ukraine and yeah. then on current economic stuff and now the election. 
So hopefully it makes that last hurdle. And yeah. once it's through that, it'll definitely get signed by, by Biden. So we've been really involved in that. And that's been kind of on the back burner for a few months now, just with other national and national affairs. Yeah. Uh, but that's been a big project. And then the other um, goal with Bike Packers is the community side of things and yeah. trying to help build community, not necessarily in ways that others aren't, but um, to support those efforts. And so we have the BIPOC Bike Adventure Program we launched a couple of years ago. And this year, Brooke Gowdy has been our coordinator for that. And uh, some people doing some really amazing things, both their own adventures and also helping organize adventures and experiences for other folks that have received grants this year out of that program. Uh, And then these um, gatherings is another goal that we've had. And we had a a big vision that the pandemic kind of put on hold for those. And so this this one in Arkansas, um, two, three weeks ago, I guess, was the first one that we've been able to put on this year or since the pandemic, basically. And so we had about 25 bike packers there uh, more than half were women more than half were first time bike packers and it was a nice. fantastic like a little bit of tutorial workshop stuff and then an overnighter and super fun fun event and experience Fayetteville and Brandon Pack there helped help make that happen and then there was another one last weekend as part of the New Mexico Bike Packing Summit uh, that Allie Johnson and then Jan Bennett one of our board members and the, the creator of the Pony Express route they were down there uh, and led another overnighter Cool. Really cool Very experience cool. for first timers. I think they went out 12 miles and camped and rode back 12 miles the next day. And so I think that's that's one of the other big things is just trying to you know get the message out however we can and I can. Also, that bike packing experiences don't need to be like big, formidable, intimidating days. Like yeah. going out 12 miles and camping, that's bike packing. Yeah, like that can be a great way to start. It too. can be very, very accessible. It, yeah, yep. Yeah. So that's you know uh, helping people experience it however they they want yeah. to as part of the goal of bike packer and then uh beyond that with uh kind of tying in the advocacy and community side of things things like the uh project that kate led with the leave no trace center for outdoor ethics actually creating some bike packing uh specific leave no trace guidelines and so now that's uh something that we believe no trace center has and we've created some really neat resources for folks between that and also beyond that how to have a positive impact along the way yeah. and so that's something we've been helping try to spread the word on so that's, I mean, that's bikepacking roots in a nutshell. Yeah, it's very cool to just see that, like, again, part of this, like, almost maturity of the sport where mm-hmm. even with the roots, right? Like, that was a thought that I had is when I think of roots, I immediately think of race roots, mm-hmm. right? And lots of times race roots are designed to be very challenging and very hard for yep, exactly. bike racers, but they might not be the best experience for someone who's going out. And I think, oh, totally. Like, yeah. you're doing good work, and then bikepacking.com, just with their push of like overnighters, overnighters right? Yeah. Like, that was another like awesome one. That's yep. a resource I honestly use all the time, and not really as overnighters, more of like training tools. Yeah, like, I'm a big, like oh, yeah, look at that. It can be I'm a big driving through this area, yeah. and I'm like, that's probably a really cool well thought out route so Mm -hmm. really just like developing those routes and it's so cool to see so many not so many but a number of different organizations like Mm -hmm. get involved and focus on different areas in the country and crowdsource it and yeah it's very very cool you step down in a way from the whole still involved with bikepacking roots mm-hmm. and then immediately pick up a new one with protect our winters. <laughs> I feel like there's yeah. a common thread here where it's like you try to like back off on something and then someone and then I immediately fail fills off. in. So protect yeah. our winters. Talk about that one a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so that's that's another amazing nonprofit that I think I mean, up until this year not many people connected or equated with bicycling necessarily. Yep. 
and just this year they launched kind of a bike division because it started yeah. with mostly skiers and some climbers correct and snowboard yeah skiers snowboard. snowboarders climbers yep. and pretty quickly also trail runners okay and so definitely winter and summer yep. summer athletes but yeah so it's a nonprofit. it was founded by jeremy jones with uh the vision of let's harness the kind of outdoor community to be a voice for advocating for climate action yeah and to become the outdoor state uh, is the the term like the number of people if you think about all the different sports that we've talked about just now plus everything from hunters and anglers um, like that's a massive number of people in yeah. a, like a big percentage of Americans yeah and if those people are all on board with you know not necessarily agreeing on the same kind of climate action but advocating for some level of climate action that's a formidable political yeah. force and so that's the goal is to grow the outdoor state and advocate for climate action and so the, a big part of the organization's approach has been to start harness the the energy and visibility of athletes and so there's these different athlete alliance teams and so there's you mentioned the, the kind of winner the snow snowboarding skier crew there's the trail crew which are mostly trail runners and then this year they launched pow bike which is a mix of uh, mountain bikers and gravel riders and i think there's a few roadies on there and then there's also people from the hunting and fishing community that have been getting more involved and then also creatives um, artists filmmakers different folks that are involved in different ways helping tell stories and then also there's a science alliance team which are scientists like people actively involved in either science uh, climate change research or science communication that can help with messaging and help um, teach so many of the athletes who don't have a background in climate change like they're not experts in climate change or climate science to be able to at least know and understand enough to communicate about why it's important to take action yeah. and i think that's one of the really big messages that pow has is like you don't need to be an expert on climate to be an advocate for climate action yeah. and you don't need to understand everything and be able to answer all the tough questions that skeptics might ask in order yeah. to be uh, a a strong advocate for climate action and so um yeah as i think maybe a year two years ago i think kate and i got involved in in pow and we were some of the the early mountain bikers i think dylan osliger out of california and um, rebecca rush and there's one other i'm forgetting who it was um cyclist at that point who were part of it and then this summer we've launched pow bike with a bunch more folks that are eager to get involved in it and so one of the film projects that Kate and I worked on this summer was called We Ride for the Mountains. And basically it's, it's just a short film sharing why we are feeling so strongly about being involved in climate action and to encourage people to go vote this, in this election in November. Yeah. Midterm elections are incredibly important. This one probably more so than any in, in recent years. And it's, yeah, it's an incredible organization. It, from the outside, it's hard to see how much is going on and how yeah. much there is behind the scenes that's going on in getting athletes to Washington to actually meet with members of Congress and lobby for climate action. And I mean, there's, there's so much that, that they're, they haven't, honestly, I think in my opinion, done a great job of communicating about because they're so focused on doing the things that matter that yeah. they don't do enough talking about the things they're doing to spread the word on that yeah but it's been a really impressive organization to to become more involved with and for better or for worse has been another big time sink for a really good cause <laughs> yeah but it's uh yeah that's i think that's one of the other things that i'm 
happy that the the election is happening next week and can dial back from involvement in that yeah. as the racing and adventure season is winding down and just take some time to breathe yeah it's really cool to see this kind of like multi-pronged approach and also again this like maturity of like discussing climate change right because there is still a large number of people out there who just kind of straight up deny climate change mm-hmm. yeah deny but the no, science deny the reality of it everything and it's honestly something that i've like back in college i was like mostly studied like documentaries and mm-hmm. so like an inconvenient truth was one that i thought about and it was like that was kind of like the first thing that really brought up climate change yep. to the mainstream yep but then at the same time like studying that film it also like set the movement back oh so man there's far. so much to be learned from that film yes. yeah and it's so cool to see this like again this like kind of maturity of how we talk about climate change and even if you don't agree with the science like if you are involved in the outdoors living in northern arizona we had the craziest wildfire season mm-hmm. like california the craziest wildfires like and it's not just like protecting our winter which is you know pow an mm-hmm. awesome acronym <laughs> but at the same time it's like so much more about it yeah. it's just protecting like the ability to live on this planet right it's yeah it's and yeah like, it goes recreate. Like, it goes it's so, so yeah it's i think it goes so far beyond trails in our outdoor experience. Yep. Like that's a really myopic way of, of thinking about it is like, I want to protect my trails in the future. Or I yep. want, I want the environment to stay the way it is or, or, you know, don't want to see more extremes because I want to keep doing what I do. But the reality is there's so many more people out there in the world that like their lifestyle, like where they live. I mean, even like literally countries in the Pacific, like some of these low lying islands, like the future of that Island is at stake. Yeah. And so it goes so far beyond, but it's things that are distant like that. It's hard to rally energy around for advocacy, Yeah. but rallying around the passion for the outdoors, like that's something we can all get on board with. And so if that's what it takes to instigate climate action, that's great. Like that's, you know, different means, but same ends, hopefully. Yeah. And it really is crazy. Like coming from the Midwest, like wildfires were never a concern, right? Like we had one tornado (laughs) a year and it was like, (laughs) <laughs> where I was, it like wasn't always it, like it was never a concern, right? Like kind of in a valley, like not that big yep. of an issue. But you know, the number of coworkers that I have had displaced from wildfires in the past two years, yep. it was like very eye-opening. Of like, oh shit! Like this is like this is crazy, right? Because yeah. it's like you see it on the news, and it's like, oh, that looks terrible. It's in the middle of nowhere, and it's like, no, 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 no. this is like it doesn't matter that it's in the middle of nowhere. This is like destroying people's homes. Mm-hmm two miles up the road like it is yeah. at the doorstep yeah so. and the extremes we're seeing are just growing in magnitude and frequency so much it's yeah you you almost have to have your head in the sand to not be yeah. seeing what's going on yeah last few questions and i guess the big question i have is like what's left in terms of adventure oh, and racing for you like is there anything that you were the first person to win the triple crown of bike pack racing, right? So you won the over, Tour yeah, over different years. Yep, yeah. Over different years. No one has won it all in a single year, and I'm not sure if anyone ever will. That would be insane. Uh, I would argue that it could happen. Okay. I think okay. it could happen. Yep. Um, Hefe. Hefe just, just became did it. the so second So now you're person. not the only one. So yep. now there's two, That's great which company. is very cool. I think very there's, cool. I mean, Alexandra is so close. Yep to um getting off i think she has to win win the azt which she's been agonizingly close twice now yep um yeah yeah but 
yeah, it's it's awesome to see some enthusiasm around the Triple Crown. I I would never want to do it all in a season. I okay. think that's that's so draining yeah. on the body. But um, yeah, I love seeing more people thinking about just the Triple Crown in general, doing all three of those races. Yeah. But so for you, no Triple Crown. No. But like, what what are the things that you like? You've already had such longevity in the sport, and it doesn't seem like you're slowing down in any way. And it's like, what are the things that like get you excited? Like, like keep you training? Yeah, to I mean, there's, there's ride al- fast. There's always unfinished business, quote unquote. Like okay. the Rockstar 270 out in Virginia. Like I've wanted to do that for a long time, okay. and it didn't go even remotely how I wanted it to. So I'd love to get back out and do that one at some point. It's unfortunately on the opposite side of the country, so it's it's a little hard to to get to for me. Um, but there's that. I would love to return to the Iditarod Trail and okay. finish riding the whole thing. I have no, I have no desire to race the whole whole length of it, but I really would like to finish touring nice. the whole thing. And so that's possibility for for this coming March. Um, the Highland Trail 550, okay, over in Scotland, yep. is one. I mean, it's I think probably the most legit single track heavy ultra in Europe. And I've ridden, I don't know, maybe a quarter of it, okay, in a couple different trips, and it's really cool. Yeah, the how wet and soggy it is over there is so intimidating for me. And so <laughs> that's that's kept me away for a while, but I'm, I'm, I think I might try to get over there next year for that one, just because I'd, I'd love to ride that whole route and try to go fast on it. And I also, like, racing abroad is something that doesn't have a huge draw for me. Like, yeah. when I go to a place that I've never been before, I really, like, being in race mentality isn't how I want to experience it. Hard to actually time. see the place, experience yeah, the place. Yeah, and so Highland Trail, like I've already ridden good chunks of that on two different trips. And okay. so I feel like I've experienced the Highlands in a few different ways already. Now I want to experience it in, nice. in race mode. And I've got, interestingly, of any other country, I think I have more friends that live in the Highlands than... Nice. Yeah, so I'm excited <laughs> to go over there and, and spend some time on their trails because a bunch of them have come over here at various times and, and ridden our trails. Um, so there's that... I don't know, most of the other races at this, like, I have no desire to do gravel, like, long gravel races okay. at this point. And so there aren't too many other ultras. The Caldera 500 out in California is one that it's kind of fading, and I think four people started it this year. Okay. But it's a really cool route, and I actually got out and rode on a little bit of it and saw the landscape for the first time a few weeks ago. And so I'd love to go do that one at some point. And then there's this long thing called the Continental Divide Trail that has been on my radar for... I think in 2009, I ordered the map set for it, contemplating riding the whole thing. And so for those that don't know, it's not the Great Divide route. It's parallel to the Great Divide route, and it's mostly single track. It's, oh, damn. It's okay. a hiking. It's one of the, it's like the Pacific Crest Trail, Appalachian Trail. Okay. It's like the third long trail across the country that okay. most hikers will do if they're trying to do all of them. It's remote, rugged. And you're actually able to ride like it it's is open. It's mostly open to bikes. The wilderness oh, sections are not, okay. but it's, it's kind of crazy to me that it's, it's literally single track across the country, mostly single track across the country, mostly open to bikes, and completely off people's radar. Oh, totally. And I've heard of it. I have a old coworker, a friend, who's finishing up through hiking it right yeah. now. But when you said it, I was like, wait, is there a different? I was, yeah, no, that's, I was a little that's confused the one. there. Where like, I was like, wait, is this like just continuing down into Mexico and just keep on going? <laughs> like, are we going? Yeah, and so there's, I mean, there's sections like northern New Mexico. There's part of it that sees a lot of people that, that do it on day trips or like a few days yep. of bike packing. Um, Montana's got a lot of really nice sections that people ride. Colorado, a big chunk of it's, it is uh, the same as the Colorado Trail. They run, okay. run yep. contiguous with one another. And... So it's one that I've wanted to ride for a long time. And then in uh, 2000, 
2015, I think, Scott Morris and Esther Haraini rode the whole thing, and they were the first to do it on bikes. And it was it was one of those adventures that was a little ahead of its time. Like, okay. they yeah. blogged a ton about it, had an amazing time. It was so inspiring. And I think most people didn't even know they were out there doing it, it seemed. Yeah. And so they, they established... I mean, basically, it, wilderness detours for most of it are easy. You just hop on the Great Divide mountain yep. bike route and follow dirt road and, and reconnect. Because there is, like, crossover with the actual There's a, Yeah, there is a bunch. And I remember yeah. I went and just pre-road weekend, long weekend, and went over to New Mexico and mm-hmm. was riding, like, south of Pie Town. Yeah. And that is one of the spots where it overlaps and all the yep. northbound folks Oh, you were seeing all were, of them. Yeah. And it was hilarious because I was like, oh, I'm just here for a weekend, but there's a possibility that in... I think it was like four months later when I'm actually racing it, I might see you, you might coming see them through way Wyoming up north. or Montana yeah. or wherever. Yeah, totally. So, yep. Yeah. And um, Aaron Weinsheimer, was, he wrote it remarkably fast a couple years after Esther and Scott did. And I think they're the only three people to ever ride variations of the full length Damn. of it. Okay. Dylan Kench wrote a big chunk of it. And I forget, I don't know if he ran out of time or weather. but um, So that's, I think, a goal for next year. And that that's like four months of single track riding so i actually find that more intimidating than probably any race nice. i've ever done <laughs> nice. yeah. except maybe that iterod that was very intimidating for a different very different reasons um but yeah i think that's a goal for yeah. for next year riding north to south and then trying to there's some really cool potential wilderness detours that bring in a lot of single track on other trails so it's stray a little farther from the divide but keep it from needing some fairly lengthy dirt road sections or keep from needing to ride through like paved road with RVs through Yellowstone Park, which sounds terrifying to me. Yeah. So nice. Nice. Yeah. And once again, that just seems like a good, again, that kind of like finding that balance between Mm -hmm. structured races, all the advocacy work that you're doing. And then also these like big backcountry adventures. Yeah. That's super cool. Yeah. That's what I need to stay happy and stay motivated. Yeah. Yeah. If I just raced or just did those, just focused on other projects like root development or advocacy, I'd, I'd very quickly wear out of yeah any one of those. And I guess that leads into kind of my last question, which is like, you know, with social media, with these podcasts, like you see all the highlights, right? Mm-hmm. And this is something that is like becoming more visible mm-hmm. in cycling, right? And I think uh, Taylor Ledeen with his mm-hmm. recent film in terms of like mental health struggles. Yep. And I guess my question for you is, you know, I'm a fan and have been a fan for a number of years. And it's like most people on social media, they share like the really, really good things. Mm-hmm. And my question for you is someone who arguably is like the greatest of all time to bike pack race. <laughs> like you're up there. Is like, what are the things that like you sh- like struggle with? Like, what are the things like, do you have... You know, you talked about, like, trying to find that balance. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, can you kind I, of under my, understand I, I my do, question? Yeah, no, I think, I think that, I mean, it, it, it's very clearly and communicated about a fair bit that social media tends to be very much highlights yep. of things. And some people are good about sharing struggles in a, a genuine way. Some people go to the other end of the spectrum and share about struggles more than anything else. Yeah. Um, and I think... I mean, I, I, I kind of hate social media, to be honest. It's like a, a tool and a good way to get 
messages out and to share about things and to inspire. I mean, there's so many positives to it, but there's also so many negatives yeah, to it that sure. can affect affect people in so many different ways. And I mean, in terms of, I think, big challenges I have is you know, over, over committing or just being involved in too many things, wearing too many hats is a big one. And I think part of it is like, as I mentioned, I kind of need all these different pieces to really feel fulfilled and feel inspired and like if i just raced my bike or just did adventures like i it's that's really a selfish pursuit in my opinion like it's very satisfying but it's not having a particularly positive or big impact on things that really matter in my opinion but if i just dedicated time to those things to like advocacy work to bikepacking route stuff to pow whatever it might be i'd i'd get pretty worn out and drained from that i mean that kind of work is really draining at times and kind of thankless in a lot of cases even though it's so important and so having a bunch of that 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 mix is really important to me i think what people don't see behind the scenes is just like how much time there ends up being staring at a computer and having meetings with folks about various things and it's a ton of that um in and like just the burnout from that just yeah yeah and like you know getting back from one trip or one race or one adventure and having you know from from a sponsorship perspective having a bunch of obligations which i like like about sharing the stories and and getting resources out there for people to be able to experience some of that on their own but that's a bunch to do is follow up and then catching up on all the other kinds of work and on coaching work that i do and you know it's it's kind of like there's if you push, if you set one thing aside for a little while to make space for the other, then when the other's done, the first thing or all the things that you set aside come back with a vengeance and <laughs> need need even more attention. Yep. And so there's there's that that reality. It's not like I think even as a professional athlete, it's not like I have time to just like race and recover and train and then have a good adventure and then sit back in between yeah. each one and recover. So this like this next few months i have almost nothing on my calendar very much on purpose just to have some recovery time from everything it's not like i don't have things to do it's just like not having commitments and not having deadlines like we were talking earlier about how challenging deadlines can can be um so not having all that so that i just do have space to breathe and like having not been home for five months like yeah that's by choice like i could have come home in between things but that adds its own other kind of stress yeah. with all the travel. And so it just made sense to, to fit things in the way I want and take advantage of being in a certain place for a certain adventure or something like that before being forced to be back here for this event last night. And so now I'm glad I'm home and have time to, to breathe and space for that. So, Go through the mail and fix the furnace oh my and God, all that mail. Sort of stuff. The mail was horrible. I only had one jury duty notice oh, in nice. there, okay. which I missed by two and a half months. But... <laughs> <laughs> Wild. need to figure out how to deal with that right right <laughs> the realities of yeah not not being home for a long time and being on the road for i mean it is legitimate work for, yeah for me but and that's i think that's one of the cool things is like that you're able to find that balance and do all this stuff and this is something that like i honestly struggled with back when i was like racing on the road full time mm-hmm. and i oh, think sure. a lot yeah. of like in a way people think it's like the perfect life to only have to worry about training and racing Mm -hmm. but when that's all you're doing yep it's it's just this weird you get in this weird mind space where it's like when that's all you're doing that's the only thing that matters Mm -hmm. and if you don't do well at that one thing then you're worthless like you're just like what is 
Yeah. Like, what are you doing? If it's like you're not winning bike races, that's all you spend your time and energy thinking about is winning bike races. So I've, you know, your approach, so many of these, you know, I don't even know if you consider, you're definitely a professional athlete, but like calling you a professional bike packer, like mm-hmm. doesn't really, yeah, that's not... it, it doesn't include everything that you do. And it's like, yeah. I love that approach that you have of it's this almost like, I don't know what the term is, but in a lot of ways, I think of it as like the working class athlete, right? (laughs) Where, you know, back in Wisconsin, there were a whole bunch of like professional racers that also had day jobs, that Mm -hmm. had families. Like they had so much going on in their life that they were able to like... I'm so impressed by people that are able to to pull that together and have that kind of focus and dedication. It's, yeah, it's hard. I really, I feel as fortunate as I, fortunate to have as much sponsor support as I do to give me time to not have to work full time. But at the same time, it just means I have time to dedicate to these other projects, which, yeah. I mean, I love that that's, that's what happens when certain, like when sponsors are able to support certain kinds of people, that people put that energy into things that matter yep. in part. And like, that means so much to me. Like, I'd, I'd much rather be that than somebody that's getting paid a whole bunch of money to just race my bike all the time yeah. and not do anything else. But yeah, it comes with its own challenges. And uh, I think... I think one of the big pitfalls that folks, you know, any kind of athlete can fall into are identifying as just a bike racer or, you know, just a basketball, you know, whatever it might be, like that becomes their identity. And like you mentioned, when, when things don't go well, that's such a a mental hurdle to navigate is because like who you think you are, who you identify as isn't going well. And so for me, I think like that, I don't, I don't know what I identify as, you know, I I don't think of myself as like I mentioned a professional, like ultra racer or bike packer or anything like that. Cause there are a bunch of different things. And when wasn't, one isn't going well, it's okay. Because you know, like when I broke my hand, this is, you know, not what I wanted, but it was okay because there are other things that I put my energy into that um, can kind of take that focus for a while and still feel fulfilling. But having all that also gets, yeah, challenging, distracting, draining. You said you don't have a full-time job, which is hilarious because it's like <laughs> with all the things that you're doing, you have more than a full-time job. It's, you yeah. have, your whole life is almost a job. Where it's, it's like... well, that that is another hard component of it is when like at this point everything I do revolves around bikes yeah. in one way or another, whether it's work or fun or play, and really making sure that the bike part of it, the riding bikes part of it, continues to be fun and feel like fun. Is yeah. I think one. I think that's the probably the one thing I put the most energy into paying attention to, and maintaining. And as soon as that starts to fade, like that's an alarm bell for me that like I need to change. I need to lay off something or back off something. And so I actually feel it feels really good right now to be at like the end of such a busy summer. And I am actually really still excited to ride bikes, even with this nagging hip injury. Yeah. And like I am still stoked to ride bikes and want to yeah. go do big stuff and actually have to like in the next few weeks be like nope it's time to take a break and like yeah. separate myself from take the bike off like, i need to yeah. force that which yep. is good like it, yep. i i don't like getting myself to the point that i feel like needing to do that is solving a problem yeah so in this case it's preventing a problem <laughs> that's awesome yeah kurt that's all i've got thanks so much for sitting down this has been awesome this likewise is, ezra yeah it's been, been great. great cool thanks thank much. you <laughs>